This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Matt, before we begin, I just need to do a quick sound check. Uh, testes, testes, one, two, three. Well, firstly, get your hand out of my pocket. <laughs> and secondly, that's a golf ball. everybody to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's and, uh, uh, medical podcast. See, I keep doing this, but that's okay. Uh, we do a lot of A to Zs. If you don't listen to our short form podcast, it's called Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's A to Z. I think six uh, to one maybe. Of the human body. Probably, so, yeah, six to one. Yeah, yeah, it's about six to one. I'm very used to that. Uh, but anyway, welcome to the long form episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's medical podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Todorovic. Joined by my co-host, Dr. Matthew Barton. Matt? Good afternoon. Morning. Good yes, morning. Good still morning. good morning. It's 10.28am, uh, Tuesday the 20... No, Tuesday the 7th, a little bit ahead of myself, of November. Just so everybody knows... And I'd like to say congratulations to the South Africans. They won the, won the World Cup in rugby. Did they? Yeah. Oh, well, good job. They <laughs> beat the Kiwis. Oh, was that a finals? It was a final. When was that? Last weekend. Oh, so a whole week ago. Sad day for us Kiwis. Are you a Kiwi? Uh, no. My dad, my dad is. My dad is. <laughs> okay. So sad day for your dad. Oh, poor guy. Um, what, one point in it? Really? If they kicked the goals, they would have won. Wow. I'm sure Kiwis. loving this. So well, well done, South African. <laughs> to, the, to our listeners in South Africa, congratulations. Well, we do have at least one. We know that. Yep. Um, what else have you been doing? You okay? Good. My eldest had a gastro last week and that was a rough night. Yeah. That can cleaning vomit. Every hour. You didn't get it? Every hour on the hour. Oh, bed God. sheets, um, sleep sacks, everything. Oh, it's, we get it maybe four times, four times a year, I reckon. Oh, really? Gastro? Yeah. 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 I reckon it once every two, three months. And generally, my kids are pretty good. They'll spew once, done. Or diarrhea. 
my wife got it last time. Not nice. Not nice. Well, I think this was her first. Really? Zarina's first, yeah. Wow. But the funny thing is, like, in the moment she's obviously distressed, yeah. but then, like, straight after she sees it as a, a, a game to change all the bed sheets and then change the clothes. Honestly, I At, think like, two in the morning. There's something to that. They don't – kids don't get – upset for too long right. with these types of things. They're upset in the moment and then they'll just play again until it's time to spew or poop. Yeah. Oh, boy. Uh, how'd you go with preparation for today? Because today we're going through the male reproductive system. Last long form was female reproductive system. Mm-hmm. How'd you go with your prep? Well, that's spent a lot of time in front of the mirror. <laughs> <laughs> le- le- learning about yourself. <laughs> we going- so did you have the textbook <laughs> and just looking going... What is that? <laughs> Correct. <laughs> that doesn't look like the textbook. <laughs> um, all right. Well, at least you learned something for yourself personally. It's true. That's, That's good. True. Uh, I did a bit of prep. Did a bit of prep. Can't say I was looking in the mirror too Well, not more than usual, but uh, we're going to work through the male reproductive system today. And we're going to focus on external internal anatomy, similar to the female reproductive. And we're going to look at the functions of the different anatomical aspects of the tract. Uh, And we're going to focus predominantly on sperm production. We're going to focus on erection and sperm ejection, known as ejaculation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we'll talk about everything in between. So they're the main physiological processes. So last week when we did the female reproductive, it was really around the menstrual cycle. Yeah. Uh, today it's more so just the production of sperm. Yeah. Which would be this term of the production of sperm would be generically called gametogenesis, right? Broadly, yes. So both female, male, female, more specifically oogenesis. But yep. today, because we're focusing on sperm production, it's spermatogenesis. Yes. But when we get to this point, you're going to throw a lot of similar terms at us. Yeah, because there's spermatogenesis and then spermiogenesis as well. And then there's... Terms like spermatogonium. Spermatids, spermicide. Yeah, spermicide, all that type of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Look, they're all very similar. But we'll get there. We'll get to that point. Um, I think just to begin, we should just go through the anatomy and the fact that it's a tract, so the sperm are produced in a particular area of the male reproductive tract called the testes. Uh, Testes, uh, plural, testis as one. Not testicles. Testis. Yeah. Right? Testicles is more colloquial. This is something that we use down the street when we're like, hey, how are you? How's your testicles? But right. medically, it's testes and testis, or at least that's Talking of colloquial, can I give you some lists of colloquial terms? For? External genitalia. Okay. So are we begin with the testes? Well, we can start. Well, let's firstly, do we need to go through all the reproductive organs? Um, and what's internal and what's external, not just list the names. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the we'll go external. External definitely encompasses the penis and scrotum. Yep. Now, there is a degree of controversy whether you consider the testes as external or internal. Yep. I've, had, I've seen some texts that will say it's external, some will say it's internal. But the testes are internal? Yeah. Who says that they're internal? Well, because they're in a scrotum. Yeah. Well, but the scrotum internally is... inside the body, I guess you can't directly see them like you would be able to. Right. The penis and the scrotum. Yeah, I suppose so. But today we'll call it external. Okay. Are you happy with that? Yeah. 
Okay. And I guess if you're going to call the testes external, you could, the thing that sits on top of it, the comma shaped structure. Epididymis. That would be also included as an external. Yeah. Okay. Sex organ. So we've got testes, epididymis. Penis, scrotum. Penis, scrotum. So they're all the externals. You're right. And then you go on the, the ductal or the tubule-like structure. Oh, yeah. The pathway. And, and so then you'll go... The sperm's highway. Yeah. Yeah. So then you'd have the vas deferens. Yep. Into the... Well, it turns well then you go into the accessory uh, accessory glands. Yeah. So you would have the seminal vesicle. Yeah. The prostate gland. And gland, the bulbar. Yeah. And the bulbar urethral gland. Yes. And between those, there's a urethra. Urethra, which has dual function of both the transport of sperm yep. or semen in this case now, and urine. Yep, that's right. And so it leads to the penis itself, like you said, external again, and then it leaves, leaves the, body. the body. Yeah. <laughs> so it goes testes, epididymis, vas deferens, then it goes to seminal vesicles, then it goes to ejaculatory duct, which is inside the prostate gland, then it goes uh, to the prostatic urethra. Then it goes uh, the bulbar urethral gland. Then it goes to the urethra itself inside the penis. And then... Which you could say there's the membranous urethra and then the spongy urethra. Yep, yep. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, outside the body. So that's pretty much the pathway from sperm production in the testes all the way to getting out. And we'll go through exactly what each of those structures do and some interesting facts on each. Okay. But you want to go through some what? So just with... The three external genitalia structures, penis, testes, scrotum, I thought I'd just find some appropriate colloquial terms appropriate. Or, slang, or slang terms. Appropriate. Could, yeah, well, not right. X-rated, okay. harsh terms. Well, we'll be demonetized from <laughs> podcasting and we'll be removed from YouTube. So, uh, and so just, just, to, just to remind everybody, we are on YouTube, so you might be watching this on YouTube. If you are watching this on YouTube... You get to see images. Now, these are going to be diagrams uh, because, again, we'll get demonetized if we have photographs of this particular system, unfortunately. Unless it's our own. Uh, no, I think <laughs> also uh, we would be demonetized. I, t- I don't think that makes a difference. So uh, ignore that. It's we'll probably it's, lose our jobs at the university uh, as well. Agreed. So I think what we're going to do is just have diagrams, um, images, and so have a look, uh, go onto the YouTube channel. You'll be able to see all these images as we talk them through. Uh, but, okay, begin with what, uh, testes? Penis. Begin with the penis. Okay, so what are you going to say? Uh, so some common terms. Right. What was the movie with... Um, Here we go. Oh, was it... Oh, I can't remember. No, I'm going to continue. Right. Okay, okay. It was a reference of the spaceship taking off and... They just kept on cutting to different Austin people. Powers. Yeah, Austin Powers. Austin Powers. Austin Powers. Right. Yeah, yes. Oh, my God, that's a giant. Yeah. And it'd be, Richard, a, get over here. That's what I was thinking. Okay. So <laughs> Richard's a, a good start because uh, shortening of Richard. Yep. Dick. Right. So that's fairly common. Okay. Um, I don't know. I don't understand the link there, though, because Richard being a name and the shortening of it being Dick and then I looked that at it. being relevant to, as a colloquial term for penis, I don't get that. Well... I briefly looked into that and the short in from Richard. So Richard apparently was a fairly common name. Sure. Middle Ages. Name of the king. And it Many w- of them. It was commonly shortened to Rich. Yeah. Which then through rhyming just went all to Rick. Right. Went to Dick. 
Rich to Rick to Dick. Yeah. Right, okay. And then... Ridiculous, because be <laughs> Because it was such a common name, yeah. they then said every Tom, Dick and Harry. Have you heard of that? I have, yeah. So it just means it's a common common term used. Yeah, but how did it then get... Uh, Into Dick, uh, to, I don't know. To penis. Yeah, don't know. Right, okay. So there's one, yep. And that, then there's... a common one, I have to and say. And then there's like the terms you would use maybe with children. So like if you didn't want to be a gross term, you might say... that. You put your willy away or oh, yeah. your doodle. <laughs> or doodle. Yeah. I mean, I've got daughters, so I don't have to worry about those terms. But if yeah. I'd imagine if I had a uh, a son, yep. I'd be using those terms more frequently. Yep, probably. Uh, dong. Okay, yep. And then an interesting one is schlong. Now, I did... Yeah, what's the etymology of that? I did look into that, and apparently it comes from a Yiddish term, oh. schlang, oh, right. which means serpent. Okay. So that's the I only can, one out of I the line. I can draw the line there. That yep. has some close um, resemblance right. to. Okay, so there's some of the colloquial terms yeah. that we use for penis. Uh, what's the next one? Well, penis, actually the term penis oh. kind of derives from tail, meaning tail. From but what, I, Latin? Latin, but oh. then that also comes from Indo-European origins, which all seem to derive from the male sex organ. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right. So there wasn't anything like fascinating with no. where the, the term penis comes from. Yep. The next one, which is probably more interesting, testes. Testes. Okay. Yeah. So etymology first. Sure. So the etymology seems to come from to make a testament or testimony. Ah. Oh, so yeah. To declare. Yeah. To testify. Western witness. I declare. Okay, so okay. it probably first would mean you bear witness of male virility. What does that even mean? I mean, like, if you were to see a, a male's testes, you would be able to say they are resemblant, the resembling bit. maleness. Oh, okay. Yeah? Okay. So okay. it would be a testament to that. Right. So that's but historically the link. That's what – but then – it gets a bit cloudier because then maybe in Roman kind of literature, yeah, they seem to say or suggest that it would also be able to um, declare testimony or witness within like a court, court system. And right. so you know how we well, were only were only males allowed to testify, possibly. Okay. Now how like you people sometimes say, "Hand on your heart, yes. swear, don't lie." Hand on your yeah, really on your testes. Yeah. Is that what they actually did? Yeah, apparently there's there is some reference into that. Oh, so maybe maybe I'm just guessing. Only men were allowed to testify in court, and to demonstrate that you had to put your hands there to say I test. Wow, that is just swear odd. on my yeah. Well, that then comes to the well swear on, swear on my crown jewels that I crown am, jewels. That's another telling one. the truth. So why crown jewels? Just the shape. I guess it's and it's the important. most important. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So then the other terms, balls, nuts, yeah, no, those. tackle, bollocks. Oh, yeah. That's, that's more British. Yeah, they're pretty, they're pretty common terms. Yeah. But that's so interesting why we always have so many terms for these I wonder also structures. whether castration, oh, yeah. which make, would make a person a eunuch, yeah. which then may so deem them. removal of the testes. Which may mean that they are not able to bear witness. Right. I don't know. Were they not able to testify in court? I'm not sure. Interesting. I didn't go into that link. And what was the third one? Scrotum. Scrotum. Okay. What's the etymology of scrotum? Uh, well, it 
could come from a term called scrotum, which oh. means a skin hide, or scrotum, which means a leather quiver for arrows. As in to hold them? Yeah, yeah. Like a bag? Like a bag, <laughs> yeah. Oh, that makes sense. So the actual term meaning was a purse-like tegumentary investment of the, tes- of the testes. Tegumentary investment? Which would be like skin-like yeah. purse, well, a skin they- purse. Don't, well, makes sense, makes sense. Don't they use... Um, could be Which is close because actually the colloquial terms is coin purse right, or ball, ball bag yeah. or sack. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it makes sense because that's what it's resembling. Oh, so, okay. Now, epididymis, external structure, like the little cap that sits on the testes, that means upon, well, epididymis, upon the didymis. I think the didymis is Greek for basically testes. And I find this part interesting, and I haven't looked into it, but the term didums, <laughs> have you heard people go, oh, didums, when they're referring to, like, their kid or whatever it might be? I mean, I don't think anyone really says it anymore, but you used to see it on TV, they'd be like, oh, didums. Is that etymologically related to testes because it's offspring? Good thought. My little I, I didums? Wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine so. My offspring? Like, anyway. Who knows? I find that interesting. I don't know what the... If you know the origin of that, let us know. Didums. So should we begin now at the testes and focus on sperm production? I think we should come back to sperm production once we've done the... Do you want to do the whole tract? Or do you want to just do the whole tract? Just a bit more focus on each part. No, I think we talk about sperm production while we're at the testes. Okay. And then that way we can follow the transit of the sperm all the way through to the epididymis and the vas deferens and we go from there. Okay. There you go. You can tell that Matt and I don't sit back and prepare these <laughs> Not uh, at all. podcasts. Uh, that's okay. Uh, we're going to start the testes. So what do you know about the testes, Matt? How many do we have? Well, before you thought there was three, but um, as I pointed out, that was a golf ball. So about the size of a golf ball? Plums. Sorry? Size of plums. I thought you were doing more... <laughs> colloquial terms, uh, which is what? I don't know the... Dimensions? Dimensions, no. Probably about, what, 12 centimetres by... Oh, okay, I don't want to guess. That's fine. <laughs> um, two testes located within the scrotum. Yeah. If you look into the testes... Well, firstly, the testes are located within that scrotum, so we should probably talk about the scrotum first of all, don't you think, since it's the most external. So it holds the testes and the epididymis. So we've... So we've Transition to yeah, the, to the, the scrotum. scrotum. Okay. I think so, right? Okay. Because it's important to say that uh, a lot of people and a lot of students will ask, it makes no sense when you've got this whole body that sort of appears to be designed or evolved in a way that best suits it for its environment. Why would you put the most important structure of the body being something that holds your gametes, your sex cells, the thing that allows for you to reproduce, mm-hmm. why would you put it outside your body in this sensitive sack, <laughs> right? And it's a, good, it's, a, it's a good question. And it's simply because for sperm production to occur, it must be three degrees lower than body temperature, which is 37 degrees. So it needs to be about 34 degrees Celsius. So it needs to be outside of the body and that's what the scrotum allows. It holds the testes outside of the body to keep it cool. Yeah, and there's a condition where the, the, the testes do not descend so and what do you mean by that? So are you saying that originally the testes were inside the body? Yeah, so I can go through it a bit, a bit later. Okay, you don't want to do it now? If you want it 
Oh no! Well, let's let's even. I'll come back to it once yeah, the, we've gone will, through the whole. Yeah. We'll do it right at the end when no one's listening. But it's yeah, it, it it originates kind of um, lower thoracic, high lumbar. Uh, that's where the testes are. When that's you say right. originate embryologically, embryologically, yeah. yeah. And then they have to descend downwards. And we kind of went that, through that last podcast with the ovaries. We did malarian wolf wolf wolfian field. duct. Yeah, yeah, I remember what um, you're saying. And then there's going to be a structure which is kind of termed the gubernaculum. Good word. Which would be pulling the ovaries down, but then the ovaries become fixed. Yep. And they are still in the pelvic cavity. Yep. But for the males, that keeps pulling it further. And because the, the further attachment of the gubernaculum is going to be in the genital swellings. So that's kind of the outer part, kind of where the perineum would be. Right. And as that gubernaculum is getting pulling, pulling, the testes have to kind of get pulled out of the abdominal a, cavity. I don't understand the pulling. I mean... It, if it's pulling out, doesn't there have to be a like a proximal attachment of it below where the testes end up? Yeah, there's a little bit left. And what's it attached to? Well, it's going to attach to the actual uh, scrotum. So there's there's a so remnants the, of the gubernaculum in the, scrotum. in the scrotum. Gotcha. And so the testes are up, the scrotum's down and out. And it pulls it down into yeah, the scrotum. Yeah, well, at this point it's just a swelling. It's not a scrotum at this point. Gotcha. So the swelling that you're referring to is what will become the scrotum. That's right. Pulls it down. Okay. And, it, and it's just a skin pouch at this point. Yeah. Which is just a swelling. Yeah. That that the homologue in the female is the labia majora. Right. Yes. But we as yeah. in the the latest phases of pregnancy, so you're talking late trimester three, is where the testes will come out of the body. Right. And then go into the actual scrotum. So and so yeah. So about 3% of full term male births will still have an undescended testy. 3%. 3%. And 3 if out of every 100. That's, that's right. pretty common. And if if it's preterm it could yeah. be upwards of 1 in 3. Wow, okay. And, and so they just w- have to And so what that would then mean if the testes is remaining inside the abdominal cavity, yeah. it is going to run the risk of the temperature issue. Oh, that makes sense. And alters, potentially could alter fertility down the track. Correct. Correct. Okay, that's interesting. So if we have a look at the uh, testes inside the scrotum being 34 degrees, interestingly, we know that our environment can change temperature, right? So, I mean, we live in Queensland where in summer it can hit 40 degrees Celsius and in winter, well, not that cold, but still... Goes below ten degrees. Yeah, right. So single digits. Single digits. And so what this means is that if the external temperature is changing, then the temperature of the testes is changing, which means it may not be the best environment for sperm production. So, does that mean the testes are just at the whim of the external temperature? You know, like a like a, uh, a what's it called? Cold blooded mammal, right? Whatever the temperature is outside, that's the temperature of its body. No, we have developed strategies to maintain the temperature of the testes within the scrotum. Two major types of muscles present, one within the scrotum and one that's within what's called the spermatic cord, okay. which attaches various structures from inside the body to the testes or at least communicate from inside the body to the testes. And that will reflect all the fascia compartments that the testes have to push through yes. as it goes through the um, inguinal canal. That's right. So through the deep ring into the superficial ring yep. or out through the superficial, but that, that canal, as it's pushing itself through, it's taking all these connective tissue layers with it. Yeah. And that's why 
the all the wrappings around the testes and the scrotum within the scrotum are the way they are is because the, the the testes has a push through all these structures to pop out. Yeah, push through the musculature of the abdomen. Yeah. Um, so if we have a look at the scrotum itself uh, and this muscle, that one of these muscles that we're referring to is called the datos muscle, and this datos muscle allows for the scrotum to wrinkle. And so if you think about it, when it's hot or warmer outside, the testy needs to cool down. So it needs to become more pendulous. That's the term. That's the term. Becomes more Is that pendulous. like a clock? Yeah. As um, grandfather pendulum. clocks. That's right. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to swing like the pendulum on a grandfather clock, but it does need to you hang. Get, you get bruising on your inner thigh. <laughs> That's well, okay. If you're running on a hot day. <laughs> and you don't want to, you know, chime the bells of midnight. <laughs> so as it, as it hangs down, uh, sorry, that's, the hanging has to do with another muscle, but the relaxation of the scrotal sac itself because of this datos muscle will result in basically it becoming more pendulous. Yeah. Um, and so, but if it's cold, then the datos muscle will contract and it wrinkles the, the scrotal, uh, the scrotum up and basically thickens the tissue around that area, maintaining heat. And so. Like a, like a jacket almost. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, so the like zipping the, zip the jacket up. Well. To, to give it a nice. Possibly. Comfort fit. But then using that analogy, if it's relaxed, that means the jacket's unzipped. And that's not happening yeah, like in loose, this case. Loose and like letting you, you know. Then your testy hang out. I don't <laughs> think that's what's happening. But if, so here's the thing, a wrinkly scrotum because of the datos muscle, there's something called scrotox. And you're the one that told me about scrotox. You're the one that introduced me to scrotox. As a therapeutic agent? Yeah, but you hand, gave me the pamphlet. You said, check this out. Um, no, I remember last time we spoke about this on one of our podcasts, you spoke about scrotox. I don't know if it's something that people actually do. Frequently. Oh, well, no, there, there is mention of it, that people do this therapeutic approach for aesthetics. So just like Botox, where they take botulinum and inject yeah. it into the musculature of the face to tell it to relax. Which is a, it's not, I don't think it's a neurotoxin. I think it's just a, a muscle paralysis well, agent. Well, right? well, it is a toxin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yes, muscle pa- uh, paralyzes muscles. And so... So the, the Dardos muscle is a bit like the muscles of facial expression. Right. So when we, when we think of the muscles, skeletal muscles, this is where you have some degree of voluntary control over. Well, not Dardos. No. I can't but consciously mo- yeah. at will. <laughs> Contract it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so these muscles, well, actually, skeletal muscles generally will move joints and bones, right? So hence why they're called skeletal Muscles. Wow. But the, the muscles Learning of facial expression, yep. they're generally attached to skin. Like, and fascia, like underlying. Yeah. Yeah. And so they will move. Well, generally the, the muscles of facial expression are all orientated around the, um, the apertures or the openings of your face. So nose, eye, mouth. And so most of the facial expression muscles will st- have some degree on. Oh, interesting. Maintaining those sphincters, either closing them or opening them. Yeah. Now, a secondary function of those is to provide nonverbal expression. expression. Yeah. Now, they do that because they're not attached to bone. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe some have a small degree, yeah. but generally they all all attach to skin. Okay. And so they can move the skin around 
based by their contraction. Yeah, yeah. Now, some of them over time will lead to the wrinkling of your skin. Yes. And so then people would then inject Botox into those regions, particularly the frontalis, yeah. which is the one above your eyes that allow you to look surprised. If you're watching the YouTube channel, I'm surprised. And uh, it kind of paralyzes that muscle, so it makes all the wrinkles flat. Right. So effectively... So with the same approach that scrotums. you would use Botox for on your face, you could use it in your... Uh, scrotum. The scrotum or the datus muscle, and it would stop wrinkling. Why? Who, wh- but why? Aesthetics. Yeah. Really? Really? I just well, I guess that's I, a, I, that, I just don't get that. That that is something that I just find very difficult to comprehend. Is that somebody would? I mean, each to their own, I suppose. But to to have to do that, uh, interesting, I suppose. Well, I guess some individuals would see it. They maybe they um, are cleanly shaven. They might see that as aesthetically pleasing, and yeah. they might also see it being extra smooth. Yeah, as also. Advantageous. No, fair enough. Each to their own. So anyway, that's the datos muscle, right? Helping maintain temperature. But there's another muscle, like we said, part of the spermatic cord. So if you have a look at the testes, it is held into the abdomen um, by, well, a number of different structures. So it's going to be held there by this muscle called the cremaster muscle. Uh, It's going to be held there by a a ductus deferens. Yes, generally the spermatic cord is this cord-like structure that has a multitude of things within the cord. Yes. And so part of that uh, spermatic cord would also have muscular fibres, right? Yep. And so by contracting those... But wait a sec, so we've got the cremaster, yep. we've got uh, ductus deferens so as a tube. cremaster or not cream master? No, not not the cream master. <laughs> I, I, I think, it could I think be, though. That's the seminal vesicles, <laughs> I think. Um, so the, the cremaster... Uh, there's cremaster, there's ductus deferens, there's blood vessels, there's lymphatics, there's nerve fibres. So anything that needs to communicate from inside the body to the testes and vice versa is going to be in this spermatic cord. So basically it's bundled up, right, in this sort of sheath. This Now, when we look at the cremaster, it is an extension of the internal obliques. Right, and so this is one of the kind of the coverings of the testes yeah. as it's migrated through the anterior abdominal wall. Oh, right, right, right. Through, through the deep ring, inguinal ring, through the canal and then popped out of the superficial ring. Yep. So in doing so, it's going to take the fascia or parts of the muscle of the anterior abdominal wall with it. Yeah. And so you're going to have these muscles as you just spoke about. And so So the cream muscle, did you say it's part of the internal oblique muscle? Internal oblique muscle, which means there are individuals, have you seen those... Monks who have been trained to get kicked in the groin? I didn't know they were monks. I thought they were just martial art artists from no. that region of the world. Uh, anyway, I don't know. I don't, firstly, why? But they've, I, I believe, I could be wrong here, they've trained their internal obliques to be able to pull their testes up into the, more closer to the abdomen so that when they get kicked, they're not actually hitting the testes because the testes have ascended up high enough to be spared from the blow, right, because of the internal obliques. All right. Uh, it can't be good. I, 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 again, uh, I, I, how, how often have you yeah. been attacked and been kicked in 
in the scrotum. Probably more ne- times than... Never. Never. No, well, that's right. A couple of times in... I mean, we use a uh, protective piece of equipment in cricket. Right. Um, maybe... What hits you in the groin? The ball. Yeah, the ball. Okay. Not other players. Not other players. Right, okay. Generally not. Um, all right, so uh, that's the scrotum. Anything else about the scrotum? So that's the cremaster muscle. When it contracts, it pulls it up closer to the body, right, to keep it warm when it's cold, and it relaxes it, again, making it more pendulous when it's warm. Right. Again, maintaining temperature. So Datos, Cremaster, these are the two muscles that help maintain adequate 34 degrees Celsius temperature of the testes, best for sperm Why do production. you think it needs to be a bit cooler? Why do you think that process, compared to, say, oogenesis, which is in the body, oh, yeah. why do you think spermatogenesis requires to be cooler? Is, do we know the answer? I don't know. I don't, I'm sure there is. I don't know the answer. Um, but mo- I'm guessing most mammals yeah. have this approach, right, mm. where the testes is outside the body. Do you reckon it has something to do with pathogens and it being a temperature that's probably not great for the production of other things? Maybe... I'm just guessing here, pathogens or cancers or maybe do you think it's that temperature is detrimental to other things and ends up just being more selective for, I don't know, I'm guessing. I wouldn't have a clue to be honest. Mm. But we should look into that and you shouldn't have brought it up because I don't know the answer. So it's a, no, no. We can ask the listeners. Yeah. If you if you do know, write, let us know. write in and let us know. Gubiosciences at gmail.com or you can go to our website, drmike.com.au. Send us an email from there. Uh there's another temperature regulator here. Should we talk about it? Because it's part of the yep. spermatic cord. Oh, we're here now. We've we've done the scrotum in conjunction with the spermatic cord. Yeah. So we might as well just cover this, all these structures all together. Yeah. All right. So uh, if you think about the temperature thing, right, you've got uh, an artery that's going to be coming down, the testicular artery, that's going to provide oxygen and nutrients to the testes. Very important because the tissue of the testes needs oxygen and nutrients like everything else. You also have arteries going to the cremaster. Yes. And also to the vas deferens. So, and epididymis. Yeah. Oh, they have its own one, does it? Oh, sorry. I thought you were just yeah. saying that these tissues all need to be fed. Whether it's its own separate, one, I think. The, these are separate arteries. Gotcha. Yeah. Cremaster. And vast difference. So it's coming down through the spermatic cord, but because it's coming from the body, it's going to be 37 degrees. So the thought is, well, if we've got the testes hanging outside of the body to cool it down, it's going to defeat the purpose if we're delivering at 37 degree blood. We need a way to cool that blood as it starts to move down towards the testes. And what we've evolved is this complex network of veins, which look braided. So we call it a plexus anytime anatomical structures look braided and it's a venous plexus called the pampiniform plexus and what happens is as the blood drains away from these structures particularly the testes forming this braid the testicular artery that moves down is basically encompassed or uh, sitting within the braiding of the pampiniform plexus so that the 37 degree and it's in such tight contact just separated by the vascular wall that the 37 degree temperature is convected away into the venous supply that's being carried away. So the venous supply will carry that 37 degree temperature or that three degree temperature difference away from the testes so that by the time the artery gets there to the testes, it's 34 degrees. Isn't that amazing? It is. 
That's is, absolutely amazing. Isn't there so another, it shows that it's, it, it is important to be 34 degrees, right? True. Multiple mechanisms to kind of maintain that temperature. Datos, Cremaster and Pampiniform plexus. Yeah. What were you going to say? Isn't there other locations maybe in the brain or the neck that do a similar approach of... Cooling? Uh, yeah. Oh, Possibly. Possibly. Let's I'm have sure, a think about I'm that. I'm sure there, there are where it has almost the same approach where vein-like structures are wrapped around an artery to change the properties of the artery. Yeah, there is, but I just can't think of it right now. But I think you're right. I'm thinking for some reason the giraffe's neck, but that is not temperature, that's more blood pressure, right? That's blood pressure. Yeah. Because what happens is uh, as the head moves down, the vessel becomes occluded so that it stops it from popping off okay. because the blood pressure of a giraffe's neck, the blood pressure coming out of the left ventricle of the giraffe's heart is super high to go up the bloody two-metre neck to get to the brain. Yeah, yeah. But then if the giraffe puts its neck down to eat some grass off the ground or whatever it may be, then the blood pressure is going to be enormous, right? Because right? it doesn't have to go up It'll all the a, way to the top of the head. An aneurysm in so this. as it puts its head down, it actually occludes blood vessels to stop the pressure from going okay. up. Yeah. Um, all right, so that's enough about the scrotum. I think we should go on to the testes. The only other thing I'll mention here yep. is generally it's considered the, the left testes hangs lower than the right. Right, yes. Have yes, you come yes, across yes. this? Yes, I have. That's a, that's a good point. For most males, left testy, testis hangs lower than the right. Yep. Now, have you heard any reasons for this? Yeah, I've got a couple of, well, I've got one major theory. Uh, I'd like to hear what you think about this, right? So and if you have a look anatomically at the blood supply, uh, the arterial and the venous to the testes, you'll see that the venous, let's focus on the venous, so the blood draining away. The right testy, which tends to be higher, will drain blood back into the inferior vena cava and the left testy... the right. That's the right. Yeah. And the left testy will drain its blood back into the left renal uh, uh, vein. Fine. And so the, the right one will enter the vena cava at a right angle, right, because the vena cava is up and down. It's, it's straight. It's vertical. So as it goes in, it needs to go straight across and it might pull it up because of that angle that's present. The left, when it attaches to the renal vein, the renal vein is horizontal. So it just attaches straight at the horizontal portion. And so it has the capacity to be longer potentially. But then there's, that doesn't really explain the difference, but the difference could be temperature related because I did read an article, which now it didn't say why, but I just want to quote this, this article that I read. The article's titled Thermal Asymmetry of the Human Scrotum, published in 2007, and they stated they found that left side scrotal temperature was higher in postmen and bus drivers, (laughs) but they didn't measure it in butchers, bakers or candlestick makers, unfortunately, but they did find it was higher in postmen and bus drivers. Is that because... Why they chose that population, I am unsure. Nor do I. Anyway, it seems bizarre. So there is a there seems to be an asymmetry. Is of, that because they're just sitting down all day in one position? Maybe not posties. No airflow. Though. Posties wear pretty short shorts. So do bus drivers. I just mean they're constantly. Well, posties they measured, may get. They get measured off. it inside clothing and outside clothing. Okay. 
Um, and inside clothing, it was different. Where was this study? I don't know. UK? I didn't Because don't po- posties in the UK walk? Maybe. They usually have smaller villages, don't they? Whereas, in Australia, whereas Australia must... they have the postie motorbikes. That's true. Hmm. That's true. Um, so I thought that was interesting. The cause as to why, what do you reckon? For the temperature difference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that attachment might, due to anatomical um, location, you know, being the, the, the right, potentially being at a right angle so as to pull it up and the left being at the left renal vein might have the capacity to be a bit longer, maybe. The temperature thing makes more sense because we know that the testes will change its level depending on temperature and this study says that left is warmer. So why do you think that's potentially the case? Any ideas? Uh, well, I've come across one Yeah, and this was a hypothesis from a colleague okay. who was a surgeon yeah. and a really good anatomist All right. and his theory was that the left testicular vein yeah. uh, has a greater hydrostatic pressure in it Oh, okay. And so it's kind of more dilated. So it's probably not draining as quickly as the other side. Oh. Okay, so therefore it would um, encourage the, the testicle to drop a bit lower because of that greater hydrostatic pressure. I didn't know how to different hydrostatic pressure. And the, one of his arguments for maybe why it's got a high, higher pressure is because, as you said, the left testicular vein drains into the renal vein. Yeah. And that's obviously draining the kidney, but there's also going to be some drainage from the adrenal gland, right? which is going to be taking hormones from the adrenal gland. And one lot of hormones are the catecholamines. Yeah. Wouldn't and, they constrict though? And they would then cause the potential slightly small diameter yeah. downstream to where the left uh, testicular vein comes in. So if that's a smaller diameter drain, draining, it's to, increasing the pressure back compared in. to the inferior vena cover. Yeah, it's got a greater hydrostatic pressure within. Makes it. sense. Okay, you know what? I like that. That makes sense. We should probably confirm, but I tried to f- confirm and I couldn't identify. So that's interesting. So left hangs lower than the right. Now with that, there's also a, a condition called a varicocele. Oh yeah, which oh, yes. would probably I've be seen many of these when I was working in the. Uh, uh, um, urology? Well, urology was one of the surgeries that was moving Common. through. But a hydrocele or varicocele. Yeah, so these is, are all. So what I was going to mention here sorry, is the scrotum, on. the scrotal sac yep. has the potential to actually exp- expand quite significantly. Yeah. And there's many layers to it. Yeah. And right? so if you were to get anything that went down into the scrotum that shouldn't necessarily be there, yep. then it has the capacity to get actually a lot bigger. Yeah. Now, a couple of the things that could go down into the scrotum that shouldn't be there is intestines. And so that would... Wait, what do you mean? Well, this Why would be... Why would you get intestines in your scrotum? Well, this would be a top of hernia. Because it had to move through... That, that canal. So okay. again, through... So these would be inguinal hernias. Yes. And there's two main differences or different types. There's the direct and indirect inguinal hernias. So just explain... What, Anatomically, you've got the abdomen and then we said that the testes early on had to move through the abdominal wall to descend out into the scrotum or into that swelling. So it had to move through an inguinal canal. Right, which is kind of in a close proximity to the inguinal ligament. So there it's going to be a a weakened part of the wall, right? right? Because it's, it's had something pushed through it. And this is why men have a greater uh, prevalence 
right. of inguinal hernias than females. And so what can happen is the intestines, if it's severe enough, can force its way through because any a herniation is any time a structure moves outside of its designated region, yeah. right? And so it can herniate out without actually falling out in, in regards to the intestines. It can herniate beyond the, the barrier, but if it's severe enough, it can fall into the scrotum. Yes, that's right. And I, I know somebody in which that... I don't know it, if I told you this. And so it can go down into your, into your scrotum yeah. or it can just bulge out in kind of your groin. So that would be the difference between direct and indirect. So direct but, into the scrotum. So if it goes then into the scrotum, then it has the ability to fill up the scrotum. So when I was uh, studying, uh, I was also working uh, in retail and <laughs> had, a, had a friend uh, come into work and he said to me, Mike, my scrotum is enormous. And I said, what are you talking about? Why are you telling me this? He goes, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. Like throughout the day, my scrotum will get bigger and bigger and bigger and it hurts. And then when I go to bed, I'll wake up in the morning and it's normal size again. And I said, mate, I think you've got a hernia. I think they're your intestines falling into your scrotum, which freaked him out. And he left work immediately and went to the doctors and that's exactly what it was. And he went and got a surgical mesh repair or something. Yeah, mesh repair. Holding it in. So, yeah. And the reason and the question might be, well, why would it fix itself up in the middle of the night? Well, you're laying down flat. The gravity. And due to the peristaltic contractions of the intestines, it pulls itself back oh, in. Oh, okay. Right? And probably also just the... And gravity is obviously... Gravity way, and the, the intra-abdominal pressure yeah. during the day. Yeah. Hence, so, usually why when you're lifting heavy things... Yeah. Which you would have it, no idea about. It pushes through the most weakest part of the... Oh, that would be a whole body. <laughs> <laughs> so other things, so hernia is something, hydrocele, as you said, that yep. could be through just serous fluid. That could be... Oh, okay, so it's just fluid that's been produced. Yeah, in b- yep. between certain layers of those te- testicular fascia. Yep. Um, that could come from congenital reasons, so in the dissension, right. but also later in life. So adulthood, you could get hydrocele's through like inflammatory processes and then just producing high amounts of serous fluid yeah and that would accumulate in certain regions of the tissue the, yeah. of the scrotum so i've seen this many times it's actually more common than you would think people would come in and again the scrotum is enormous um and and just it's just fluid filled right and so, and I think the way they can see that if it's blood versus serous, oh yeah, it, it looks sh- yellow. You can shine light through it. As oh well. yeah, you don't even need to do. You can just look at it. You can just, well, if it's big enough, you can. Yeah. And it's big. I mean, I've seen it extremely big. And there'll be times in which, you know, it, they, they just drain it. There's not much else yeah. you can really do. So you cut through the various tissues until you find the tissue in which that hydrocele or fluid-filled sac is present, and you make a little nick into it, and you just drain the fluid. So I remember one time um, I had to hold you know, the kidney dish that was going to be draining that fluid into while the surgeon is cutting and then a part of the tissue peels away, cuts to the next layer, tissue peels away, goes into the next layer and nicks the fluid-filled sac. Oh, I think that's a tunica vaginalis. Yeah. And then because it's under high pressure. Oh, you got wet? It squirted all over my scrubs. It, it, it went past the kidney dish onto my shirt and went all the way down my shirt and then went into the kidney dish. And I'm holding it and then I just said, okay, I'm going to go get changed and have a shower now. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was gross. It was gross. But that was, it was, it's common, you know, and this is just something that happened. Um, the condition isn't gross. 
it squirting on me was gross. Just to, you know, when these conditions happen, people should go get checked. I'm not saying it's, you know, you're gross. Please don't yeah, think Yeah, I think, like, I think getting, understand that. getting covered by any body fluid from someone else is gross. Okay, thank you. I, <laughs> I agree. I agree. I just wanted to say I don't want people to get it confused that it's gross and that they sh- should be ashamed or anything. They Great. shouldn't. You yeah, should go to the doctors right. and get yourself checked out and, you know, sorted. So, so, there, so there's some of the condition. And, I mean, more problematically, I mean, all, all these would be a, a condition that needs to get medical attention, but yeah. a real... A medical emergency would be if the sp- spinal cord kind of twists on itself. So I a know torsion. someone that that's happened to. So yeah. if it twists around itself. How does that happen though? I think it would again be uh, the structures that the sp- spermatic cord has formed. Yeah. And then maybe they're more lax. Right. Not as taut. Would it have to be a particular event would need to occur? I don't know. Maybe. Or it's probably got a congenital underpinning. Yeah. And if it has the ability to turn on itself, then the, the concern would be blood, you, supply. blood supply. So you are then Oof. restricting blood to the area and, yeah. and necrosis would be the, the outcome you're trying to avoid. Absolutely. So and, and again, like any structure that you cut um, blood off to, you've probably only got hours. Yeah. Ooh, so I think that's what they do to, um, not, well, not torsion, but when they... Castorate animals like oh, sheep. With a rubber band. Yeah, they just put rubber bands around them. What if that's painful? I don't even want to think about it. I think it's a bit gross. All right, so uh, the testes, site of sperm production, right? It's also the site of testosterone production. And so importantly, these are the two major um, products of the male reproductive system uh, and both are produced in the testes. So testes are extremely important in this process. If you were to take just uh, the testy itself, testis, and you were to cut into it, you would Which see... Which way? Um, Longitudinally. Longi- uh, the sagittal section of the testy. Yeah, sagittal section of the testy. You open it up like a book, basically. You'll see that there's all these lobules inside. So these 250 of them. Per testis, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And inside of these lobules are what's called seminiferous tubules. And so these seminiferous tubules, I think in total, make up about one and a half metres. Yep. Um, and so there's, I think there's between one to four seminiferous tubules per lobule. That's right. Yeah, very good. You, you did your research, Matt. And the whole purpose of these seminiferous tubules is that if you look inside of those tubules, so now you do a cross-section inside the tubule, so you're looking down the hollow So these are just, pi- these are just pipes. They're just pipes. But these pipes, you know, if you use the example of like a PVC pipe, you know, like a plumbing pipe, instead of just, just having... Let's go with a garden hose. Okay, garden hose. Instead of having like the rubber hose itself, the rubber aspect will be a lot thicker and it's going to be made up of cells, a multitude of cells, and three really important types of cells that are present here are the spermatogonium, which are sperm... Uh, germ cells. Germ cells or stem cells, right? You're going to have Sertoli cells, also known as sustentacular cells. Or nurse cells. Or nurse cells. And then sitting outside the hose, because you're going to have, remember, one hose is one seminiferous tubule. So it's almost like if you were to hold in your hand four hoses, all cut in a cross section, sitting between each hose, you're going to have other cells. This is called the interstitial area, right? This is where we have Leydig cells. So you've got Leydig cells, also known as interstitial cells, that sits between the seminiferous tubules. In the seminiferous tubules of the walls or closest to the walls, you're going to have Sertoli cells and you're going to have spermatogonium. Okay. Now, 
This is the site of spermatogenesis, which is the production of spermatids, which are immature sperm. Then the spermatids will mature into more mature, not, not final stage sperm, but more mature sperm, and it's called spermiogenesis. And then that sperm will transport itself to the epididymis, which is that little comma-shaped cap that sits on the Post, testes. The posterior part of the testes, yeah. And that's where the sperm will undergo its final point of maturation. And we'll talk about that in a second because a couple of other things occur under the umbrella of maturation. So if we look inside that seminiferous tubule, you've got the spermatogonium. Their job, as they mature into spermatids, they get closer and closer to the hollow Lumen. Lumen of the seminiferous tubules. Makes sense. Yeah. And that's where it can sort of swim to the epididymis. The way this occurs, relatively straightforward, if we simplify it, <laughs> just like with everything, I suppose, is that uh, signals from the brain, once puberty hits, in actual fact, it happens a bit before puberty, but let's just say puberty hits 11, 12 years of age, uh, the hypothalamus will stimulate... So these are the same hormones that we've seen in the female reproductive system? Exactly the same hormones, yeah. So they're called the gonadotropins and they're released by the anterior aspect of the pituitary gland. And there's two types, follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Now, they're named after what they did in the female reproductive cycle, right? right? So follicle-stimulating hormone stimulates the maturation of a single follicle. So the follicle... Because the in the ovary uh, example... They do have follicular cells yep. that somewhat is this FSH is binding to. So you would say the equivalent of the follicular cells is the Sertoli cell. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, and then you've got the luteinizing hormone, which in the female reproductive cycle stimulated ovulation to occur, but in this case it stimulates testosterone to be released. So basically once puberty hits, these two hormones, follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, are released into the bloodstream, travel to the testes, and follicle-stimulating hormone, like you said, stimulates the Sertoli cells, also known as the sustentacular cells, to release a multitude of um, uh, chemicals, which you could probably just broadly call androgen-binding proteins or an androgen-binding protein. So it just makes the binding of testosterone more efficient to this process, right? Yeah, exactly. And then the luteinizing hormone, so think of L in luteinizing hormone, stimulates the Leydig cells, also known as the interstitial cells, to release testosterone. And that testosterone was sort of diffused into the seminiferous tubules and bind to the androgen binding protein that's released by the Sertoli cells. And this stimulates the process of spermatogenesis. Tells those spermatogonium, it's time, let's start producing what we call or what appear to be sperm or right. spermatozoa. But they won't become spermatozoa yet. They become spermatids. Okay. But in this process, there's complex genetic things occurring, right, in, in spermatogenesis. So if you think about it, and we sort of spoke about this when we did the female reproductive cycle in, in the last long-form episode. So the stages of my, meiosis, is that what you mean? Yeah. Okay. And so it's a lot simpler here for the male reproductive. Because it happens one go. Well, that's right. For Opposed. the females it happened before birth and then happened at puberty. And then at and then fertilization. Again at fertilization, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, but if you think about it, right, all, all the cells of our body contain 23 pairs of chromosomes, one from mum, one from dad for each pair. 1 to 23. Um, now, that's the same with the spermatogonium, the stem cells, but there's no point give – you're trying to create offspring, right, which is 50-50 you and your partner. 
So you can't give That's them interesting. Just, 23 pairs just, each. Just when you said that, yeah. I came across a quote the other day that says, humans don't reproduce, they recombine. Yeah, yeah. I Whereas, yeah, that's yeah. Like that's a the good only way animals that reproduce are those that clone themselves. Yeah, asexually. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. Whereas for humans, we recombine. Yeah. Because then you, you know, your children are They're half you. Yeah. Right. And then your grandchildren Ish. are a quarter you. Yeah. Ish. And then keep going. Right. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously generalizing, yeah. but you get my point, right? Yes, exactly right. Whereas. Some animals would kind of just clone itself. There will be clones for multiple generations, yeah. yeah, or all generations, pretty much. So, so to that point, there's no point having a sperm cell or a spermatozoa having 23 pairs of chromosomes because that's all of you, right? Uh, and there's no point having an oocyte or ovum having 23 pairs of chromosomes because that's all of the other person. So you want half of that each. So that yep, half yep. of you, half of them recombine, like yep, you said, to yep. produce a totally new, different individual. Yeah. That is a combination of you and your partner. Um, so the spermatogonium, the sperm uh, uh, stem cell, has 23 pairs. So what it needs to do is it basically will double that. So the first step is mitosis. Mitosis. So it doubles. You're thinking, wait, that's this is the opposite of what we want to do. But it doubles. So now has two lots of 23 pairs. And then it pulls itself apart. So now you've got two of these pre-spermatids, right, that have 23 pairs. And then these 23 pairs start to recombine. So they start to mix with one another. And then the genetic material combines. So instead of you having your the, the chromosome one that is in every cell of your body, you've got chromosome one pair in every cell of your body and they're identical basically. So the sperm, one of these sperm cells is going to have exactly that, but then the chromosome ones combine and create a new chromosome, two new chromosome ones, yeah. and they get pulled apart. So now you have four of these pr- early spermatids yeah. that only have a single chromosome one in them, a single chromosome two, single cro- and they're recombined. So they're different to any of your chromosome ones that you contain in all the cells of your body. I think it's just an interesting, well, it's an important point to just go back to yeah. where we have on that. So when we get, when we focus back to that um, seminiferous tubule yeah. and it's like the, the hose analogy, yeah. closest to the wall of the hose mm-hmm. um, is where the stem cell is, right? Yeah. So what is that term? Uh, spermatogonia. Right. So that's the stem cell that will be starting this process off, right? Yeah. Now, you said the first step is to kind of double itself. That's right. Now, the kind of the purpose of that is because you've created two, okay, but it's kind of a direct copy of itself. Yeah. One of those, which is the type A cell, okay, it will just go back to being a pool of stem cell. Oh, very true. So that way it just keeps cycling itself, which is part of the reason for why males can continue this process through the whole life, generally yeah. speaking, right? Yeah. Whereas we make in comparison a thousand per per heartbeat. Wow. A thousand sperm per heartbeat. Okay. Yeah. Just to put into context. Whereas in the female comparison, mm. the number that you've born they're born with is pretty much set. Set. Yeah. And then obviously they're not going to go through so if there's two hundred thousand, you're not going to have two two hundred thousand ovulations. Mm. But you're not going to be able to increase that number 
anymore. Yes. Whereas in the example here in the testes, you've got this sturm, uh, well, the, germ, the, primordial, the primordial germ layer yep. or germal cell, yep. which is a spermatogonia, right, that can keep going by generating this pool of yeah. ongoing cells. Yeah. So what you're saying is you could, from the spermatogonia you can generate a pool of continual sperm cells up until, well, basically when you 70, – 70% of 70-year-old males can still produce viable sperm. Right. right. This doesn't happen in females and it's because of this point is that they don't have a germ cell oocyte that can continually replenish other oocytes. They will have the oocytes present from – Birth, yeah, right, and then those will become depleted over time, um, and which is really interesting. I'm not sure what the evolutionary benefit is for that to keep going. Well, no, to to not have the capacity to continually create oocytes throughout a lifetime from a a, a, a stem cell, an, an oocyte stem cell for females. It could be about preservation of DNA. Over time. I wonder, my thought would be the difference in the egg compared to the sperm. Yeah. All the sperm is providing is DNA. Yeah. Whereas the ovum oh, very is true. the whole cell. It's everything. Yeah, yeah right. it does and, all the important stuff. And so it gets to a certain age where it becomes deleterious for an offspring. Good point. You're going to be too, there's going to be too many errors and so forth in it. You're right, because basically all the mitochondria comes from the mum, right? All of the organelles, all of, I mean, all of those things that are present to help maintain. Yeah, so I think that's probably a good point is that um, if it continued as we get older, obviously, you have a, a reduction in physiological capacity. So s- structures and functions uh, diminish and I think that would also be true for eggs and sperm, mm. right? But like you said, because it's just DNA in sperm, it's probably not as much as a big deal because you're not passing on other things like the the, the mitochondria, which are important for metabolism and process. I mean, super important. Okay, so anyway, they're just so guesses of ours. So you said so, we had... So the type A just continues the pool of stem cells going. The other one has doubled its DNA. Yep. And now so it's, going type to, B. it's going to pull itself apart to create two. And then that becomes the primary spermatocyte. Yep. Okay. Which then combines. Which then... Or does another level of meiosis. Yep, so combination. Yep, and then that splits again, Yep. which then... Four. Four. So four now... Four single, so what we call haploid, single cell, uh, single chromosome uh, spermatids. Yeah. Right? And so it's now these spermatids that can start to mature as it moves through into the lumen of the... Um, Seminiferous tubules, thank you very much. And so as it's moving through, it's moving through these nerve cells or these um, Sertoli cells. So the Sertoli cell itself is kind of like a globular mass that it it has to kind of push itself through and it's providing that nourishment for all this process to happen, one being the antigen binding protein, Mm -hmm. but also it it kind of causes a protrusion within the, the Sertoli cell itself, which kind of puts the Sertoli in two compartments, a basal compartment yep. and a adluminal compartment, yep. which means I think the adluminal compartment is probably more impacted by the testosterone levels. Mm-hmm. And I think it also plays an important role with the immune system. Definitely. It's, so, there's a testy immune barrier. Yeah. It's actually 
The seminiferous tubules are immune-free. There's no immunological reactions in the seminiferous tubules. Okay. Do you know why? Well, I guess it's got antigens on there that may be seen as... Once you create new sperm, they'll be seen as foreign. Right. Because they're recombined genetic material. Okay. Right? Yeah. So they're not self. Right. They're effectively not you, your yeah. sperm. Okay. Because it doesn't have your complement of DNA. It's got a recombined complement of your two chromosome ones and two chromosomes two and, yeah, and so okay. forth. So it needs to be And that's free. different enough to produce like an antigen response. Absolutely, yeah. Okay. And so it has to be immune. And so the Sertoli cells, like you said, that are sort of pushing their way from that basolateral wall of the seminiferous tubules, it plays a role in maintaining that blood testy barrier. It's really Amazing. interesting. Amazing. So it takes 64 days for this process of spermatogenesis to occur. So two months, yep. basically. Um, to go to, from a globular cell yeah. to then get to a, a, a cell that looks more like a sperm. Yeah, which is that tadpole sort of analogy so that, that we use. that tadpole production mm-hmm. is called spermiogenesis. So it's still yes, part of yes. spermatogenesis, mm-hmm. but there's the latter phase of it is changing the cell from a globular-like cell to a tadpole-shaped cell. Yeah, spermiogenesis, that's right. And so this last process is important because the uh, the appearance of the sperm is kind of what dictates its ability to fertilise the egg. Yes, but testicular spermatozoa, which is what we've now produced in the seminiferous tubules, cannot fertilise eggs. Because it hasn't been activated yet. That's right. It needs to be activated in the epididymis. And that's where it matures. Is now it gets transferred to the epididymis. But at this fa- at, at this stage, what's it look like? What what are the different structures? Well, I think the most the important the, the most important, and you can see this if you are watching this on YouTube, you can see the image yep. that we're describing. But essentially, it's gone from a globular cell that, when we teach general cell biology, we always just say a cell looks like this round thing with yep. a cell membrane and a nucleus in the middle and some scattering of organelles, right? But to make it into a tadpole, we've got to do some adjustments to organelles. So we start with the Golgi apparatus, yeah. which has the protein, generally Folding. the protein factory, right? Yep. And that starts to throw together a whole lot of protolytic pro- protein enzymes. Yep. And that forces to the front end of the cell. The head. It's going to be the head, and that's going to be important for what we call the acrosome. Yep. And that's important for its ability to go through parts of the uh, the follicle. Yes. So the follicular cells and then the zona pellucida, and then to get success into the actual ovum. This mm. acrosome is that structure at the front of the the sperm. Yep. Now behind that you have the nucleus, and so this this is the most important part of what the sperm needs to do is to deliver that pl- payload, which is the genetic payload. That's all you need to do is just get that yeah. somehow into the into ovum. The now at the behind it, you have an array of mitochondria. So we like uh, jet packs. Yeah, that is just lined up with all the fuel for the long journey. Mm-hmm. And then behind that is this long protein-like structure and that's a flagella, which is the tail. So the tail also has mitochondria in it and, importantly, the mitochondria 
needs to create ATP for this tail to, to, to undergo motility. Do you know what the substrates are that the mitochondria will use for the tail to work? Fructose. That is one. So this is, I found this interesting. This was new when I learned this. If you look at the tail, you've got the mid piece, which is the part that's closest to the head, and then you've got the tail part, which is the, the longest portion, right, of the tail. The mid piece uses oxidative phosphorylation. So it uses oxygen to create a lot of ATP. It's slower but creates more abundant ATP. The very end of the tail just undergoes glycolysis. So that means it uses glucose, fructose and sorbitol are the three major fuels. But the mitochondria of the sperm can use, in addition to glucose, sorbitol, fructose, which are found in the accessory glands, which we're going to go Mm -hmm. through. So it provides that nourishment to the sperm through the process of emission ejaculation. Um, But it can also use fatty acids. It can use ketones and it can use lactate. Ketones? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Especially for all those uh, meatheads out there who, who, who just eat meat only and produce ketones. But anyway, it's not the preferred energy source. Fructose, sorbitol, glucose, preferred energy source for the sperm. I just thought that was interesting. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Uh, all right, so are we now moving that sperm through the seminiferous tubules into the epididymis? Yeah, so now the Sertoli cell does this, this last kind of secretion and flushes it out. Yep. through those pipe-like structures, which could be ballpark a metre long. Yep. Now, what it has to do in terms of movement is it has to go through the seminiferous tubules where it comes into the reti testes. Yeah. And that's kind of this confluence of all the tubules. Yeah. Again, looks like a braided sort of network of tubules. It's also sometimes termed the mediastinum of the testes. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then it kind of has these efferent ducts that leave the mediastinum of the testy and then yeah. goes up to the head of the epididymis. Yeah, now, so then you've got like this confluence, this sort of collection of what looks like the seminiferous tubules, but they basically form an extremely long duct, which... Uh, and, that, and that would be the equivalent. I mean, this is the two different structures embryologically come together. So the, yeah. the godonads came from a, a ridge, which is a different group of cells. Yeah. And the first part of the epididymis come from the Wolfian duct. Yes. That would be that connection that you just described would be the equivalent of the Frimbae 
in the fallopian tube. Right. Of, so, the, of, the, of the reti testes? Or yeah, basically. It comes together to yeah, form yeah. the head of the epididymis. Yeah, that connection between the two. So now these uh, seminiferous tubules basically form the duct of the ep- or the ducts of the epididymis. And they're like between five to six metres long. Which part? The epididymis. The ducts that make up the epididymis. Wow. And it's divided into a, a head, which is the top, a body and a tail. Yep. Um, and that then connects into the ductus deferens. But here at the epididymis. Or the vas deferens. Or vas deferens. Same, yeah, same thing, different name. Ductus or vas. I think we use ductus now. Okay. It's a duct. Vas, I think, was named after Johnny Vas. Vas, <laughs> I don't know. But that's where the vasectomy comes from. So yeah. to cut the vas or to snip or to ligate or whatever they do with the vas. Anyway, something that sort of stops the uh, spermatozoa from leaving the epididymis, basically. Yep, yep. And then the question I get all the time is, wait a minute, you're saying that when I get a vasectomy, they cut my vas deferens, so I don't ejaculate sperm, I ejaculate something. It's like, yeah, well, it's all the fluid, you still, you know, seminal fluid. Which would be the majority of prosthetic. semen oh, is the flu- bulk of it. fluid from the accessory glands. But no sperm. No sperm. Or at least shouldn't be. And That's then the why question you're sterile. Is, and the question is what happens to the sperm? And it just gets reabsorbed back into the body, yeah. just like the, um, what you say, the primary A yeah. uh, spermatogonia or like the 20-odd oocytes that don't Correct. get selected Per, uh, for ovulation. Per cycle, yeah. Yeah. So same thing, mm. right? Same thing. Um, so we're in the epididymis. Now, here in the epididymis, maturation of these sperm cells occur. So this is where they obtain its motility. This is where uh, capacitation and acrosome reaction capabilities also mature as well. So this is kind of like, um, at the, you know, how you see the start of the horse race where they go into their... Stalls. Uh, stalls. Yeah. <laughs> they kind of get lined up here right. ready for an ejaculation. To finalise the, the, the process. That's right. It's just like, okay. Um, <laughs> that's that's one way of looking at it, I suppose, <laughs> especially today it's Melbourne Cup Day, so it's it's quite apt. Um, so, yeah, the, now just can you f- just further elaborate this point without going into too much detail? So they need to obtain their motility. We get that because we've spoken about the fact that it's simply just the fact that the, the proteins of the tail um, uh, and the midpiece and everything like that are just maturing and the mitochondria are maturing. That's okay. But it, it, it obtains the capability of capacitation and acrosome reactions here. So what do those two things mean? Not, not necessarily what's happening here, but what, what's the relevance of it developing the capacity for or the capability of capacitation? Well, I, my understanding was the, the the process of capacitation happens in the female reproductive tract. It does, but, but the capability for capacitation happens here. Right. So my understanding is that they just, at the headpiece end or, or the head end, they have these glycoprotein structures yep. within them and they need to be cleared or altered for maybe the acrosomal reaction to take place, which yep. basically means as the head is starting to burrow its way through the follicular cells yep. that are surrounding the ovum, they have to be able to kind of push their way through it. Into the zona pellucida. Towards that. And then you have certain um, receptors that can bind to the zona pellucida so that they need to have these receptors exposed to be able to fertilise or to get the fertilising process to take place. Yeah. But I think once it binds to the zona pellucida, then the acrosome 
almost in, inverts. Yep. So it turns in on itself. It flips itself in. Yep. And then it kind of has a headpiece or like a crash helmet that is just a helmet of enzymes. Yeah. And then it's just burrowing its way through that zone of pollutant. Yep. And then the first one that can make it through, there is another reaction where that has to bind. And once that binding has taken place, then there's this kind of cortical reaction, which is, I think, a wave of um, calcium processes through the egg. Mm. And that kind of then stops any further sperm being able to put its DNA into the egg. Yeah. And so I'd imagine those two processes they're getting prepared is, here yeah yeah exactly all those all those relevant proteins and enzyme well they're enzymes but are, are getting all prepared right here That's and exactly so it's, right. it's interesting and, and, and there's fluid getting produced in here too allowing for this process to occur the so, epididymis uh, produces fluid if you were to if you were to get an egg mm-hmm. a oocyte a oocyte yeah not a yeah. chicken egg or anything <laughs> just for context and have it in a petri dish yeah and then just throw a sperm, ejaculated sperm straight onto it. Yeah, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't fertilise. No. So with IVF, they actually have to do artificial capacitation. Mm. So they have to do the cleaning process and then they have, then that will allow the process to happen naturally. Yeah. But for some individuals that acrosomal reaction doesn't take place and then there's another process where they, stands for ICSI, I think that's just intracellular fertilisation where they actually have to get the sperm and inject it into the egg. Yeah. Which you've probably seen the videos for. Yeah, that's the, the ones that you see in the movies. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a, that's kind of a process they don't generally first go to, I don't think. Yeah. That's a, a later process because you are then, you're not kind of allowing the, the strongest sperm to select for, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So you kind of, this whole process from male to female fertilisation is a, Kind That's of a, selection a survival process. of the fittest kind well, of thing, right? Uh, yes, because uh, sperm, um, so basically s- s- when we say sperm, we're simply referring to the seminal fluid with the, with the spermatozoa inside, right? So, And there could be somewhere between 100 to 300 million sperm spermatozoa. In, one, in one ejaculation. Yeah, with around about three to three and a half mils of fluid that's associated with it. So that f- for humans, that is ejaculated into the vagina, Right, so it has to move through vaginal mucus, cervical mucus, the uterus, fallopian tubes or uterine tubes, in order for um, fertilization to occur. So the, it's an arduous journey with a multitude of things in the road, obstacles, obstacles which are selective, right? And they're going to so, for example, uh, sperm, like the Hunger Games, in a way, yeah. So, for example, uh, misshapen sperm are negatively selected for at the vagina. And then once it gets to... Right, right. Right? So, and so then only, quote, unquote, normal-shaped sperm will make it to the cervix. And then there's mucus associated with the cervix and a particular environment with pH, which is selective again and so forth. Um, for mice, for example, they uh, deposit their uh, sperm directly into the uterus. Yeah, right? yeah so, other animals do this as well. Right? So, like I was going to bring this early up. They're one of the, I mean, it doesn't really fit here because we're talking about testes, but um, an odd-shaped penis is the echidna who has a four-headed odd penis. Odd for us, not for the echidna. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. A four-headed penis. 
Foreheaded. <laughs> four heads. Oh, not on its forehead. <laughs> right. <laughs> you gotta be you need to be specific, Matt. So a uh, penis with four heads. Oh, right. And um, so So with four urethras? Yeah. Uh, well, yes, that's right. Um right. I think there's some I, I don't know how many marsupials have similar reproductive tracts as this, but I know that the monotremes. Uh, yeah. I know that the um kangaroo is similar. They have not yeah. the four, but they have two. So they have a two four. pronged yeah. um, kind of uterus. Again, with uterus yeah. or penis? Uh, uterus. But for the male kangaroo, it's only got the two. But for the echidna, it's yeah. got four, which means two of them rest oh. dur- during copulation. Really? And so then it kind of turns on itself and then it can have another, maybe not the same female, but potentially. So it can it can decide um but which which two heads go in, which urethra is ejaculate. Yeah. Like, wow. Yeah. And then it rotates and So does that it. mean um so if there's specific control of each is there different so they each have different ductal systems. Presumably. So each have different testes. I don't maybe not testes but maybe just the the final point that it comes out of. Well, that's interesting. We need to look. Maybe, but, but, hopefully, for the YouTube channel, we can find uh, a diagram of the echidna's reproductive tract, male kidneys, kidne, echidna's reproductive tract, and put it up on the screen. Right. That'll be cool. Okay, if we can find it. Um, so from, are we done with the epididymis? Yeah. And now we can start talking about the sperm moving through the vas deferens or ductus deferens. So this is a relatively long tube, right? I've, I haven't measured it. Okay, well, that's interesting. And, and <laughs> I know the epidemis is fairly long, like you're talking like potentially 10, 10, 10 metres. Yeah. So that's quite long in itself. But the vas deferens, I think, is, I'm not sure about, uh, look, it's between 10 to 20 centimetres. Sounds about right. Something between there. But basically the vas deferens will go from being in the, from the epididymis, from the scrotum, up through the spermatic cord, and it goes into the abdomen and it basically moves uh, towards the sort of posterior lateral aspect of the abdomen and then moves towards the posterior or back part of the bladder. Yep. And then sort of as it moves through the back of the bladder, it... So it's kind of nested between the, the fundus of the bladder yeah. and the rectum. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So basically sitting between the bladder and the rectum. Mm-hmm. And here it starts to uh, dilate a little bit, change its shape, and it turns into the ampulla of the vas. So again... And that's going to be lateral to that is going to be the seminal vesicle. Yes, so, so whatever is coming through the vas deferens, which is going to be spermatozoa, so sperm, with a little bit of fluid that's come from the epididymis, right... That is going to eject into a tube that will also have the seminal vesicles eject its fluid into as well. Yeah. And this tube is called the ejaculatory duct. So now we have a com- combining of seminal fluid from the seminal vesicles and sperm. And this ejaculatory duct is basically inside the prostate. Yeah, that's right. So now you've got the, the ce- pro- central zone of the prostate. So it's called. Yeah. And so now the prostate is also releasing its fluids into this uh, duct as well, this yeah. ejaculatory duct. So now you've got two, in actual fact, there's about three or four glands associated with the whole tract, right? The seminal vesicles, which, so if if we have a look at it in regards to um, volume, the you got the seminal vesicles, which a make la- up- a lateral to the ampoule or the vas deferens. Yep. So, so that's still on the back of the bladder. 
Yep. So that makes up 1.5 to 2 mils of total ejaculate, so semen. So semen's about three to three and a half mils, right? So the seminal vesicles make up 1.5 to 2 mils of that. So that's upwards of 70% of the fluid yep. is from the seminal vesicles. The prostate makes half a mil of fluid and the bulbourethral glands, which also known as the Cowper's glands, mm-hmm. they make up the... There are urethral glands, but we're not going to focus on those. But the bulbourethral glands make up around about 100... Well, 0.1 mil, so 100 microliters of, of fluid as well. Generally speaking, there's slight differences between all these fluids, yeah. but huge overlap. They sort of all produce similar stuff. Some have produced one thing more than others and so forth. But basically, if you look at the seminal vesicles, they're producing water, carbohydrates, lipids, nucleic acids, vitamins, hormones, proteins, cytokines, prostaglandins, salts, and it alkalinizes... Yeah, the fluid. The fluid yeah. So it makes it more basic. Which would be important for the vagina. Which is acidic. So yeah, yeah to combat that. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. Because my assumption would be the seminal fluid and the prosthetic fluid would be important to go with the sperm. Yeah. But the bubble urethral gland is more preparing the urethra of the of the penis. Absolutely so right. So just to um, lubricate. lubricate it yeah. to get rid of any Don't urine. Don't do the hand action. <laughs> <laughs> any kind of urine action, uh, urine remnants out, yep. and anything that's potentially maybe blocked it, yep. and to also neutralise just the urethra, the spongy urethra. Exactly. But the other two is more for the sperm. Yes, m- maintenance of the sperm. So it's got uh, the nutrients that it requires. So a big one is fructose. The fructose, but also, you know, again, it's got lipids and it's got yep. nucleic acids and it's so forth that's present. Um, prostaglandins, and yeah. these are going to be important as, uh, in a way... Two things I came across. Okay, yeah, okay, I want to hear what you've got. One, potentially causing a change to the smooth muscle of the cervix. Yes, I've heard that. And also to inhibit the female's immune system. Heard that as well. Yeah, it, it. I don't know about inhibit, but it modulates it in a way that makes again, it less like you, likely to attack the sperm. Going to what you said happens to the own bo- your own body attacking your own sperm. Yeah. The female's body would see that and go, the there's something, <laughs> something not right here. Yeah, it shouldn't be there because it's it's foreign, foreign. right? So, of course, it's going to identify it and, and attack it. So I think you're right. That's what I read about the prostaglandins as well is it's it's an irritant in a way to the mucosal lining of the uh, female reproductive tract, um, but also, like you said, modulates the immune system to make it less likely to attack the sperm. Uh, so it's moved now through, so the, the into the ejaculatory duct now into, which is in sort of sitting within the prostate. Yeah. So to describe the prostate, basically, unlike these other glands, which sort of sit outside the tract and eject contents into a duct, the duct is sitting within the prostate, Yep. right? And the prostate uh, can be a relatively large gland. So it's about the size of a walnut. Yes. And it hopefully shouldn't have the feel of a walnut. That's when the issue And it it sits just under the neck of the bladder. Yes. And I think this is where it's got its name from, prostate, to promote like a state to be obvious. Really? Yeah. So it's like a, a thing that is, uh, I, did, I did write it down. It basically means it just stands out. Right. How? To prostate. 
Is that just through dissection? I think if you were to look in that area, mm. the prostate would be quite obvious as a structure yeah. below the bladder. Uh, yeah, if you were looking through dissection. Yeah. So the thing about the prostate is obviously uh, it Here we go. is... Prostate's Greek term, which means one standing before or the protector. Okay. So Guardian or protector of, in this case, the bladder. Very different to prostrate, yeah. which a lot of students write in exams. Prostrate means to lay down. Or to That's, put your head down, yeah. Yeah, so it's not prostrate. But, it, prostrate. but, it, but interesting, the, the term prostaglandins come from this prostate, right? Yes, it was the first site that prostaglandins were derived from. Derived from but now we know it's they're made by so like it. every tissue in the body. So it doesn't Well, really probably help. more correctly that prostaglandins is made by the seminal fluid, not the prostatic fluid. So maybe yes, that they more, probably prostate. Maybe they just fluid. inspected semen right. and they were like, "There was a lot of prostate, a lot of uh, prostaglandins in here. Yeah. Must be from that that gland that stands out." I reckon you're right. I reckon you're right. Um, the other thing about the prostate is it is like a, a would you call it a fibromuscular tissue, and so yeah, but it's also glandular. So significantly, it's gland, yeah. but it will have a fibromuscular aspect to it, which helps with its contractile. That's right. A contractile to help release its contents. But the thing with it is it has the capacity to hypertrophy, to, to, to grow, to change its shape and size. And the size, I think we do, we've done, actually we did a whole podcast on the prostate. Did we? Do you remember? I know so, I did a video on it. So we did a whole podcast. We'll on show you an image of, of the prostate yeah. in, in these zones. But it's important to realise that I think something like 95% of males mm. over 80 will have an enlarged prostate. Not ne- like so prostatic hypertrophy. Not necessarily prostatic cancer. No. But hypertrophy. And they usually come from different areas. So in, in But the-, the size isn't necessarily the issue, right? Because it's the way that the tissue of the prostate grows. Because it can get bigger outwardly and it's not going to impact the the tubes. But if it grows and it starts to impact the tubes internally, well, there's two tubes that's actually entering the prostate, right? There's going to be the ejaculatory duct, which is coming from the vas deferens and the seminal vesicles, mm-hmm. but there's also the urethra. urethra coming out of the bladder. Yeah. Hence why any impact in changes to the tissue of the prostate could impact urination and ejaculation. Yeah, and so... Within the, the different structures of the prostate, there's an area called the transitional zone, yeah. which is the part that's most closely hugging the urethra. Yeah. And that structure, that histological region, is the one that's mostly impacted by, with that BPH, benign prostatic hyperplasia. Yeah. Whereas if you look at the peripheral zone, this is more on the posterior aspect of the prostate, yeah. that's more impacted by uh, the prostate cancer. Yeah. So it's kind of away from the urethra more than the transitional zone. Mm, gotcha. And so... So enlarged prostate, which is, quote-unquote, um, a couple, um, can be a couple of different things, like you said, um, the symptomatology can be different depending on the cause. Yeah, I mean, you, may, you may not get the changes in urination, urination as you would with BPH. Yeah. And... Um, interestingly, the peripheral zone is the one that's most outer part and in the most close approximate to the rectum. Hence the digital examination. And that's why that's important because if you were to feel an enlargement but also maybe... It's usually the, the, the texture. The texture, yeah. yeah. But the, 
the transitional zone changes is fairly common and that's because of or one of the thoughts is the way that testosterone is modified into a more... Estrogenic. Uh, no, a more uh, powerful form of, I think it's dehydro-testosterone. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. dehydro-testosterone, yeah. That is done more frequently in the prostate and that puts those cells under greater um, likelihood to alter or to become more rapid in their production, right. so hence the hyperplasia. Yeah. Now, because you're constricting the urethra, you are putting a greater challenge on the bladder to empty. Yeah. yeah. So that would then lead to, I think, an overflow type of incontinence. Yeah. But it could also lead to more problem or problematic issues like acute kidney injury from a, a post-renal cause, which is the kidney can't empty. Yeah. Um, All right. So, but, but interesting, the final thing I just want to mention, oh, okay. with the peripheral zone, which again is the area that um, prostate cancers more frequently, the way that the prostate empties itself into the urethra, the central zone, which is in a, cl- a similar proximity as the ejaculatory ejacul- duct. It's probably worth watching the YouTube video at this point if you're on the podcast so you can see exactly what Matt's referring it, to. It puts its fluid into the urethra on a vertical angle, yep. right, whereas the peripheral zone puts its um, secretions in more of a horizontal angle, which means that the peripheral zone is more prone to get urine reflux. So urine can actually go back up into the prostate, which can then cause inflammation, which then may lead to prostitis. But also it's thought maybe that is why the peripheral zone is more uh, vulnerable to cancer. Okay. Is it's just the arrangement of the way the ducts get put into the urethra. Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, have a look. Have a look at the image, and then you can see all those different areas that Matt's referring to, if you have the chance. Now, can once, I say one more final thing? Yeah, as long as it's interesting. Well, the 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 proteolytic enzymes that the prostate is producing. Yep. Is also the um, so that plays an important role for the the semen. It's thought to break down certain proteins in the female reproductive tract. But that hormone, well, that enzyme is also the enzyme that we can test for in males for the possibility of prostate cancer. Because they'll produce more of it? That's the thought. Because the prostate's bigger, so you produce more? Yeah, so that's what we call prostate-specific antigen or PSA. Yep. And because that, that's just a, a pro, uh, an enzyme, but if you are producing more of it, it's thought that the cells are more active so that could correlate to the possibility of cancer, but it, it also would be high in BPH and it would be also high in any irritation to the prostate gland. So it's not a... Specific. Specific. Yeah, even though it's called prostate-specific. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and that's, <laughs> come, that's kind of come under controversy more frequently in clinical medicine because of, well, if you've got high PSA, yeah. go and get it looked at okay, go get it looked at, oh, you've got high PSA, you must have prostate issues, let's go and take it out. Mm. And that may cause more detriment on the male than it would be if you just left it. Right, possibly. And, yeah, so that's it's a very, not so controversial, take, so but you, it's, it's, it's a difficult area to so, know. So you treat the symptomatology? Well, it's a combination of, um, yes, PSA, if you are... If you are at risk, so if you have a history of prostate cancer, then PSA levels is important. And if that goes up over time, then that could be indicative of something worsening. Yep. 
but then doing in combination with the DR, DRA, digital it's, rectal examination, uh, yep. uh, DRA, um, would also be important. Yeah. But then you'd you'd have to maybe also consider. Is that what Dr. Dre stands for? <laughs> uh, MRI, <laughs> MRIs, yep. which is probably the new screening tool now yep. that's considered in combination with the most important um, diagnostic tool being the biopsy. Yeah. I, again, going back, I've spoken about a lot of uh, my history working in the operating theatre when I was a young undergraduate student, just being a wardsman, you know, just watching and these various operations. One, which was, again, tri- quite common, was called a TERPS. Yeah. So trans- TERPS, transurethral resection of the prostate, generally for non-cancerous prostatic hyperplasia, but transurethral. So basically through the urethra... And going out. They would go in, they would put like a little burning tool through the urethra and they would start literally scraping away at the prostate from the inside out. And would that be under radiography? Um, I can't remember. I don't think it is. Wow. Yeah. I think there's a camera in there at the same... Oh, okay. definitively a camera in there at the same time. So they're just kind of looking... They're looking and scraping. Yeah. And just going... And they're constantly flushing. I mean, for this... A terps, right? You know, they're obviously scraping away not huge amounts of tissue, but it would fill probably two, three-litre buckets of fluid. You didn't spill this over yourself, did you? I have... Very quietly, yes, I took – because what they would do is they will press the buzzer for me to come in to, rem, to get you're rid like of – You're like a milkmaid. Oh, well, well basically, <laughs> I would come in, they will press the would buzzer. Would you wear the same apron? <laughs> <laughs> I would come in and they would – because they would press the button for me to get rid of uh, the bucket, right, which is <laughs> – and replace it with another bucket. So I've got the bucket sitting there, empty bucket, ready and waiting. Don't buzz me. I walk in. The fluid's like got a meniscal layer. I'm like, how am I supposed to take this out? And I remember taking it out because the doors for the theatre, you just push it back against the other, just swinging doors. So I did that and then as I moved through, the swinging door came back and hit my arm. I spilt it all over me, like litres all over me of warm. Now... Most of it is just saline, saline. Yeah, yeah. but because it's warm and it's just yuck. Again, another time no, I had to change no, my another shower. Another shower. Another shower. All right, so moves through. Sounds like you spent most of the time in that job in the shower. Not wrong, not wrong. So it moves through the prostate now after it's released its prostatic fluid and from there it's now starting to move through uh, the urethra. So the urethra... Well, it's going to be the spongy urethra. The spongy urethra. Yep. Uh, and as it moves through the spongy urethra, it's now moving through the main part of the, the body of the penis. So the root of the penis, the body of the penis, then the glands of the penis, and then uh, that's which the, the he- external Which is the head part, yep. 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 And then it's out. Now, just as we enter the root of the penis, so sort of like the base of the penis, you've got the bulbourethral glands. Yep. So these are very small glands that, like I said, release 0.1 mil of fluid. And like you stated, they're there predominantly to sort of prepare the urethral lining for the sperm to make and the seminal fluid to make sure it's the best environment possible. Because we know that urine in regards to what's in it, components, and pH can be super variable. So if you've got 
uh, remnants of urine in that urethra. Yeah, it could be detrimental to the sperm. Exactly. So it sort of allows for that lubricate and also can lubricate the head of the penis as well as that bulbar urethral fluid moves through. So now... With, with the ejaculation, yes. what I came across was... But I haven't spoken about ejaculation yet. No, just in terms of the fluid. Oh, okay. The ejaculate. Ejaculate. Yeah. Ejaculation is the, the process. The, <laughs> the first... I don't know how you say this. Um, the first <laughs> no, we knew you'll say it incorrectly. <laughs> because ejaculation comes out in pulses. Right. Like yeah. a pun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, the, first, the first portion yeah. is mostly uh, sperm, mostly sperm. Oh, you're with, saying of the fluid that comes yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the prosthetic fluid. Yeah. And then the seminal fluid comes in the latter end of the ejaculation. Oh, right. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And that's because of the contractile, because of it, it, the, the musculature associated with the fibromusculature of the prostate, I assume as it contracts over that time, it starts to release more and more prosthetic fluid. Yeah. And I wonder also, this, this is going to be the, the levels leading up from, you know, the, the, the start of the excitation phase to the plateau phase to the... Um, ejaculation phase, yeah. leading up to those points, I'm, I'm sure, and we're going to talk about the different um, autonomic control here, yeah. but I'm sure that the way that these glands are secreting their substances into the urethra yeah. happen at different points. Yeah. And so probably the seminal vesicles may kind of empty their contents at the kind of heightened level of the orgasm yeah. opposed to the bubble urethra, because that would come early. Mm. And I think that is got a term to it, that fluid that can come up before ejaculation. Yeah. And that's also an interesting thing to consider that if a male was to ejaculate and then sometime between maybe another event of sexual intercourse, um, there could be still um, sperm, sperm in the urethra. Right. Yes, and yes, yes. if you go into another sexual intercourse or it's just sexual event, um, the bubble urethra, which is is producing the fluid to prepare the urethra. Yeah, might put sperm out towards the glands right, penis. Which could then lead to um, fertilisation. Yeah, interesting. Without yeah, interesting. ejaculating. Yeah, of course. Oh, mm. That's interesting. I believe that happened on an episode of Scrubs. I think <laughs> he was- got his girlfriend present, uh, pregnant without... Oh, now I can't. No, remember. no, I think he got pregnant by not having sex ej- with her. Yeah, we just ejaculated externally, but it landed on her. Something like that. I remember. And they were all laughing at him. Yeah, they were all laughing at him. Poor guy. So, um, when we look at the um, penis itself, because we need to look at the anatomy of the penis, right? So, if you were to look at a cross sectional view of the penis, so. Um, basically, just cutting it down right down, oh, not down the middle, sort of. Cutting it so you're separating the distal and proximal aspects. So if you had a sausage laying on the table yes. and you just cut it in half <laughs> <Why do> you, <laughs> into, a, I mean, into an anterior, posterior yeah. portion, yeah. then that would be the cross-sectional cut. Yes. Yeah. I mean, horrible way of putting it, but you're totally right. It got to the point. Well, yes. you, you know the term wiener? Yes. That's named after like a Frankfurt. Okay, a, a Vienna Frankfurt. There you go. Yeah. Okay. So again, another colloquial term. It's one of the reasons why we're going to get cancelled, uh, <laughs> podcast. And I wonder if I wonder if the terms in, that we're using will be okay for. I mean, this is all educational. Mm. We we obviously are being a little bit silly in moments, 
but it's just to make something that people can sometimes find uncomfortable a bit more comfortable. Yeah. It's not yeah. for us. We lecture this stuff all the time yeah. and we don't make these types of jokes in our lectures. Like generally probably, not. No, generally we don't. But we're doing this just so a broader audience can actually feel a little bit more comfortable talking about things that they probably aren't comfortable talking yeah. about. Just so you know, before you complain about us being silly about a serious issue, we totally understand that. So if you have a look... Uh, into the penis once we've performed this cross-sectional area, you've got a whole bunch of what we call spongy form tissue or spongy tissue. So you've got sort of three bodies within the penis. You've got two lateral bodies, which make up most of the penis itself. And these are called the capora cavernosa. And this- They, uh, look, they look like banana boats. You know those boats? What's a banana boat? You know those boats? <laughs> I only know the, art, the, the, the sunscreen called banana. You know those boats that you see, um, they're inflatable, yeah. that, that a whole lot of people sit on and they get towed behind a big boat? Yeah. Is that- they, they curl up on each end. Right, because of the, the swellings either side of it. I can. Uh, I remember that what comes to mind is Jaws. You know how they're um, right in that it's in Jaws and then Jaws comes at the back of it and oh, takes yeah, a whole lot yeah, of them out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, but it kind of looks like um, this curved, like banana structure. It's yeah. Corp- the corpus. Yeah. The corpus because there's two of Because there's two of Corpora cavernosa. So cavernosa because it's cavernous. So it's got a bunch of sinusoids. So it's. And this tissue. is going to be important for the erection side of things. Yeah. So it, it's tissue that can be filled or engorged is the term with blood. And so basically, these two bodies of spongiform tissue, similar to the type of tissue in our nose, really. Um, has erectile, erectile tissue. Erectile tissue has an artery either side right down the middle of it. So, well, when I say either side, if you've got two of these um, corpora cavernosa bodies that make up the main body of the penis itself, there's an artery that goes right down the middle of each of them, right? This is important. Then underneath on the... Um, what would be the ventral aspect of the penis, you've got another body, which is called the corpus spongiosum. Very similar, um, but its difference is down the middle, there isn't an artery. It's the urethra. Yes. Right? So that's important. Now, on the dorsal aspect, you've got some of the veins. So this is where the blood's going to drain away. Now, if we... Are we talking about erection now? We can do it. The other thing of just important note... The th- a structure that wraps up the capora oh, cavernosa yeah. Yeah. is like the tunica albuginea. Yeah. And it's like, again, <laughs> using the sausage analogy, it's yeah. like that outer skin. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so yeah. it wraps both of those um, dorsal uh, columns yeah. up really tightly. Yeah. Whereas the spongy, the spongy doesn't have that same wrapping. Yes. And so that means it doesn't. When it when it enlarges with blood, it doesn't um, compress. Yes, it stays relatively the open. Spongy urethra does. Yeah, yes, right. but when the other two enlarge, the capora cavernosa, when they enlarge, because of the tunica albuginea, it compresses the veins. That's right. Now let's keep that in mind because we're now going to talk about uh, erection and ejaculation. So when it comes firstly to uh, erection, we need to talk about flaccidity of the penis. Right. So. How is the how does the penis remain flaccid? So generally speaking, if we look at the penis, it has somatic and autonomic innovation. So somatic is sort of like the innovation our skin gets, right? So are you talking motor? Well, both both sensory and motor. Okay. It has sensory and motor somatic innovation, but also autonomic, which means sympathetic and parasympathetic. 
if we first just focus on the somatic innervation, it comes from what's called the pedendal nerve, and the pedendal nerve originates from the sacral aspect of our spinal cord. Two, three, four. There you go. It allows for sensation. S, so touch. S, two, three, four. Yep. It allows for touch sensation of the penis. This is important when it comes to sexual stimulation, but also provides motor um, activity to the muscles of the penis, which are called the bulbospongiosis and the ischiocavenosis. Mm. Now, these are more external muscles of the penis, which can be consciously contracted, but more so during an erection. So once an erection has occurred, these muscles can contract uh, and are actually very important to contract for ejaculation. The final, the final point of ejaculation. Yeah. That's right, right. So that's what the somatic aspect can do. Now, the sympathetic fibres of the autonomic nervous system, they're coming from the lower thoracic upper lumbar, sort of like T11 to L2-ish. This is somatic. I'm oh, sorry, sympathetic. This is sympathetic, yep. Um, and what the sympathetic innovation does, so think of sympathetic as fight or flight, right? It maintains tonic contraction, so constant contraction of the smooth muscle of that spongiform tissue. So the corpora cavernosa and the spongiosum, right? Um, it, and it also maintains constriction of the arteries as well. So you've got the smooth muscle is constricted of the spongy tissue in the penis and you've got constriction of the arteries as well. Okay. This is all happening because... Uh, sympathetic neurons release noradrenaline mm -hmm. and that's constricting these things. Now, what does that mean? Well, if you're constricting the arteries, less blood is going to the penis, so less blood will fill the penis, it remains flaccid. If you're contracting the smooth muscle of the spongiform tissue, it doesn't allow for those sinusoids to fill with blood either. Right. right? So, so in actual fact, the sympathetic nervous system... Inhibits a... Erection. Erection. Maintains flaccidity, which also means because you're constantly contracting the arteries, the penis is actually hypoxic during flaccidity compared to other tissues right, of the right, body, okay. right? Now, if we're thinking about uh, an erection, an erection uh, obviously can be stimulated psychogenically or psychologically through uh, erotic thoughts but also through touch mm -hmm. of the penis through that pedundal nerve is obviously sending those fibres. And that touch sensation can go to the cerebrum and you can have conscious thoughts about that so you can actually actively think about that or you it can have a reflex arc going into the sacrum and out of the sacrum. So that's more touch-driven. That's more touch-driven. And, and so you can have a reflex arc that happens from that touch sensation. And this is what can happen with individuals who have spinal cord injury. If their autonomic nervous system isn't allowing um, for uh, an erection to occur, the reflex arc at the sacrum can. Right, right. right. So, And then this could be also how would possibly it play a role during sleep? What do you mean? Well, erection yep. happens pretty much in every REM state. Right. So every I didn't know it happened in nearly every REM state. Every REM cycle. Yeah. There is something that happens neurologically mm. that um, an erection would take place. It's probably inhibition of the sympathetic nervous system. And sometimes you may have heard the term <laughs> the morning wood. Okay. Have you? Have you heard I that? have. I have. And yeah. I think that's because you've just come out of a more like a REM state. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, all right. Well, let's so presumably a, that that means it's got more parasympathetic flow. Well, or inhibition of sympathetic. Yeah, so it can okay. be one or the other. Oh, right. right. Okay. And so, okay. So, if we look at the parasympathetic fibers, generally speaking, you can th- remember erection and ejaculation with point and shoot. Right. That's so, com- commonly used, and I think it's it's a fairly good, yeah, memory so tool. Point is erection, parasympathetic. P for parasympathetic. Shoot, ejaculation, S, sympathetic. Yeah. So we need activation of the parasympathetic nervous system for an erection to occur. So these parasympathetic fibres arise from the upper sacrum, like S2 to S4, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they just do the opposite of, like parasympathetic usually does, of the sympathetic. So the release of uh, acetylcholine... Yep. And they go to the endothelial cells. They go to the endothelial cells. Which go around the blood vessel. Which release nitric oxide. Yep. Tell the blood vessels to dilate. That does the exact same thing for the smooth muscle of the spongy tissue as well. And what this allows for is blood to leave the arterial system, engorge the spongiform tissue, fill that tissue up so much that, like you said, pressure is being placed on that tubica albuginea and that pressure between the spongiform tissue and the tubica albuginea puts pressure on the dorsal veins where the blood is going to be leaving the penis or just the veins in which the blood will leave the penis. So it's like a, a compression, compression stocking. Stopping the blood from leaving the penis so it maintains there. Um, and this pressure goes above 100 millimetres of mercury. Right. So if you think about what that means, right? <laughs> right. So think about this: the, the the blood that leaves the left ventricle, 120 millimeters of mercury. That's how did how did you know this? Modified blood pressure cuff. <laughs> it's a, I don't know how they know this. Uh, I don't think they used a modified blood. Maybe pressure on the cuff. on the blue whale, which has the largest penis in the animal kingdom. How big? Um, like 15 feet. Whoa. Okay. Something like that. Okay. Well, I'm not going to... Fairly long. But then you have some animals that proportional to size is a lot longer. Like? Like slugs. Really? Sea urchins. Yeah. Because sea urchins have to like... You've just named two things that look like penises (laughs) already. (laughs) So are they just measuring the whole organism? No, no. Or they themselves have... Well, a lot of these are hermaphrodites. So they uh, can fertilise themselves, but they're neighbours as well. Right. And so... Um, maybe just to get the is that the right the fa- term the phallus further across is hermaphrodite the right term yeah oh, okay at least what I've come across yeah. oh, okay oh, that's and so even with the sea urchins mm. um, the penile length changes <laughs> depending on if it's um, in calm water or rough water really yeah wow didn't know that anyway. so relative to its body. They're the longest. Longest. Okay. Well, thanks for bringing that up. You're uh, so, the yeah. So the blood pressure within the penis during Skyrocket. erection, yeah, skyrockets. Um, mind the pun, goes up, <laughs> and it goes above 100 millimeters of mercury, which is huge amounts of pressure. Right. That that's enough pressure that it's similar to of the blood leaving the left. Uh, ventricle, yeah. which we know if you were to measure, you, so is that, light, measure the distance of the blood that's being ejected mm. from that left ventricle, it would go a couple of metres. So right? do you think that's because because the venous pressure is so high, it still has to bring blood in to the area, so that blood pressure has to go so high to still bring in um, 
oxygenated blood because obviously you can't, um, cons- if you were to hold an erection for, I don't know, half an hour to an yeah. hour, yeah. If, if you won't get any oxygenated blood in, it would. Well, remember the penis is already hypoxic. So it's probably used to low okay. oxygen levels. So I reckon it could maintain for a while, but this is one of the reasons that when if people... It's also take, a, medic, a medical emergency, right? Yeah, yeah. Pri, pri, priapism? Pri, priapism. Which is just in a, a, an extended period of an erection. Yeah, which can happen if somebody takes... Um, what's it called? Viagra. A Viagra, um, which just stimulates nitric oxide so much. Well, can I... Go back a step. Sure. With so the um, erectile tissue, mm-hmm. it's kind of like honeycomb. Yeah. So it has smooth muscle cells wrapped around it. Yeah. And so when you go to the erection process, which you said parasympathetic releases acetylcholine mm-hmm. to muscarinic receptors mm-hmm. on the endothelium, and to make it simple, they just produce nitric oxide. Nitric oxide goes to their neighbours, which is a smooth muscle, which goes around the um, the, the honeycomb parts. The sinusoids. The sinusoids. Yep. And they generate an enzyme, nitric oxide generates an enzyme called GTP and that changes into GMP. Now that process causes the alteration of calcium ions within the smooth muscle cell and that essentially just drops calcium levels which makes the smooth muscle... Less likely to contract. More flaccid. Yeah. And now doing that, it causes the sinusoid to fill out with blood. So ironically, flaccidity of the smooth muscle leads to an erection. That's right. And so going to your Viagra point, Viagra basically stops the breakdown of cyclic, oh, sorry, guanine TP to GMP. Okay. Did so, you even mention those? Well, that was the enzymes. You know, has, you know I said GTP to GMP? Yeah. The enzyme that does that was guanylate cyclase. Yeah. That gets repackaged by phosphodiesterase. Yeah, people are sticking with you. PDE, which (laughs) is exactly where Viagra works. So Viagra... So make it simple. Viagra what? Inhibits the enzyme that breaks down uh, the thing that drops the calcium away. Gotcha. And so you keep calcium levels lower in those smooth muscle cells for longer. Gotcha. Leading to... A longer stay erection. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So we've got the erection. We've got that sorted parasympathetic nervous system. That's what's being stimulated in this process, inhibiting the sympathetic nervous system. Now we need to talk about the process of ejaculation. And there's two main phases called uh, emission and expulsion. Uh, and it involves... Uh, so just now is it switching into a sympathetic flow now? Yes, exactly right. So this involves the distal epididymis, the vas deferens, the seminal vesicles, the prostate, the prostatic urethra, and the neck of the bladder, right? So in the very first step of ejaculation called emission, the first thing that needs to happen is the neck of the bladder needs to close. Yep. And that's important because you don't want, and it's not about urine coming into the urethra, it's more so about stopping backflow sperm, of... Sperm going into the bladder. Sperm going into the bladder. Exactly right. Um, and so what now happens is ejection of prosthetic secretions. Um, the uh, organs of this are going to be innovated. It's actually complex. They're innovated by both sympathetic and parasympathetic, these accessory glands. But generally speaking... Um, it's sympathetic overall. And so what happens is 
the sympathetic neurons that are going to be leaving the thoracolumbar area, they innervate the ducts, the, the smooth muscle, because all of these hollow tubes have smooth muscle associated with them, uh, and it tells those muscles to undergo that peristaltic contractions, mm-hmm. right? But it also innervates those other muscles that I spoke about earlier, um, those two muscles, the ischiocavinosis and the bulbospongiosis, which are somatically innovative yeah. as well. And all of these undergo rhythmic contractions. Okay. And it's these rhythmic contractions of this sort of pelvic musculature um, and also the pelvic musculature, I said, is under somatic control. So is the external urethral sphincter under somatic control. But there's no evidence that we voluntarily control this expulsion phase of ejaculation. We don't know how this works, right? So what I'm basically saying is that we know that important aspects of the body are controlled consciously through somatic innovation, yet under sympathetic innovation, ejection must occur Mm -hmm. or will occur, and we don't control that voluntarily, yet we need voluntarily controlled muscles for ejaculation to occur. Does that make sense? Or is that for the last emission point? I think that's – it's all part of it. It's all part of it because you need the rhythmic contractions for the glands. To put all the fluid into the urethra. I yeah. just thought the somatic outflow right at the end, I guess it's the emission end because yeah. that's the final, yeah. right, that contracting the ischial cavernosis and the bulbous spongiosis is the, the actual – Shooting out phase. It is. But in a way, it's not consciously controlled. Okay. Yeah, I, I yeah, I think you're right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But it is. But it is. So there's something happening that we don't understand in regards to us switching from, uh, I, I don't know, it's a different state, mm. whatever, whatever that may mean. And then you've got e- ejaculation occurring. Um, now. And then, and then once you've... That would be considered the orgasm? No. So ejaculation and orgasm are two separate things. Okay. But they're intertwined. What the difference is uh, is sort of tricky to pull apart, but ejaculation is obviously just the expulsion of the semen and the sperm and the orgasm is an experience that is associated with this process. Okay. Right? So you can have orgasm without ejaculation. You can have ejaculation without orgasm. Okay, got it. Right? Yep. But they're entwined. Yep. Okay. And so once the ejaculation has taken place, then you'll go through a phase of resolution, which is going back to the start and I guess the sympathetic is then turned off. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And then you will have a period where you cannot... Refractory period. Yeah, where you can't get another erection for a period of time. Yeah, and I don't think we fully understand that refractory period either. And is that it? Well, the only thing I'll mention is a fairly common uh, condition, ailment, that men may suffer would be erectile dysfunction. Oh, yeah. And that could come into play from psychological reasons. So everything you spoke about that leads to that excitement phase of an erection Mm -hmm. being psychological... Um, 
mechanostimuli. Yeah, all molecular, that. vascular, psychological, endocrinological, they're all So if there involved. were things particularly psychological, so anxiety or certain um, maybe mental illness states, yep. that could impede the ability to, to start or hold an erection. Yep. But also there are organic causes of erectile, erectile dysfunction and that could come down to things like uh, atherosclerosis. So if you've got poor blood oh. flow to that region of the body then you're not going to be able to do all that process that we spoke about to engorge the penis. Yeah. And that could be through hypertension, through diabetes or other conditions that would impact blood flow to the region. Mm. Then treatment, as we spoke about, one of the most common treatment modalities would be the, the drug, Viagra, which does basically impacts that ability to keep calcium levels low in the smooth muscles yep. to keep the the erectile tissues engorged with blood. I think another important clinical point is that when surgery is happening happening in this particular area, and it might be of the glands, it might be of the various structures, prostate, whatever it may be, it's important to for the surgeon to be mindful of all the autonomic innovation because it can affect yeah. the process of e- erection and ejaculation. So that's that's an important thing to keep in mind. Uh Oh, I see that Matt's uh, no, looking well, at embryo- embryology. Well, let's, no, let's leave this. Whew. No, no, no. So, what do you what what do you want to say? I think that we wants to I hear? think we covered it fairly well in the female reproductive. So it's the same thing, right? It's the same thing. It's Wolfian just female malarian. It's just the d- differentiation of the ducts slightly change. So early on in embryo embryogenesis, the the gonad is undifferentiated, but one of the biggest players in what determines it to come a testy is the Y gene. So the Y gene has a sex-determining region in it. The Y gene or Y chromosome? Y, y chromosome, sorry. Okay, yeah. It's called the SRY gene so, in, in the Y chromosome. So genetically, genetic males are XY and genetic females are XX. Yep. So that, that is what's the term, the sex chromosome. There's 23 pairs, 22 somatic that make the body. 23rd pair is sex-determining yep. or uh, associated chromosomes. An XY male, XX female. So you're so, saying on the Y, there's a gene that does what? It leads to the, the differentiation of the gonad. Because right. at the point of, say, four weeks embryologically, the gonad has not gone in any particular direction. So you're saying if you were to take at four weeks an embryo, is that what it would be called yep. at this point? Yeah. Um, and you go, oh, let's have a look at the genetics oh, this is XY, let's call this genetic male. This is XX, let's call this genetic female. Anatomically, indistinguishable, mm-hmm. at least gonad-wise. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, so I, I think that's an, an interesting point to highlight as well, is that, you know, it, it's at this moment the, that differentiation process has not occurred. Yes. So, but now it's starting to. So the, the Y chromosome would have that gene on it, yep. which would then lead to a change within the gonad. Okay. Okay. Now then the cells within that gonad would develop, you know, the Leydig and the Sertoli cells, mm-hmm. which then would be secreting testosterone and testosterone plays an important role here yep. because without testosterone, you're going to, the embryo would be exposed to estrogen from the mother. Yeah. And so it's going to be more feminized. Yeah. But with testosterone, you're going to get changes. Now, one of the, the main changes is the ductal system that runs parallel to the gonads. So there's a two ones you mentioned. You've got the Wolfian and the Malarian. With, with testosterone, it selects for the Wolfian duct 
and that's just going to produce all the ducts that we spoke about. So the epididymis, vas deferens, and then going into the um, urethra, essentially. Mm. So it produces that ductal system. Yep. If that was to not develop, then you would select for the malarian ductal system, which would produce the uterine ducts so, and, and parts of the uterus. And I think I said this in the female reproductive one, but um, so the default is a, a female reproductive tract. You need a positive selection for male. Yeah. Through testosterone. Testosterone, testosterone and malarian inhibiting factor. Right. Yeah. There's yes. two. There's two. Right. Yeah. So you need you need to actively select for male and actively deselect for Correct. female. But with the absence of either of those, you'll get female reproductive tract. Correct. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. Okay. One final point I'll ask you. Is sure. Apparently. Have as many final points as you like. I Do we have listener mail that we're going to read out? Well, I haven't sent you the emails, but you can read it. Yeah. Um, so the question is, I came across, again, an, a, a quote that said, the size of the Y chromosome yeah. has been diminishing in humans right. and it's predicted that it will completely disappear within, I don't know, they said 20 million years. Okay, uh, no, that's, that's a lot of years. But did you make that time frame up or no, did they say that's, that? They said that. Okay. Um, now, but then they said that the important genes that need to be retained will just go on to another chromosome. Okay. How does that work? That can happen. Can you explain? So usually, usually bacteria can uh, recombine through that means in which you can have the translocation of genes jumping from one chromosome to another, but it happens in humans as well. I mean, there's times where you can have through common com- combination processes, you can have a gene change chromosomes. So oh. it, can, it can happen. Wow. It can happen. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, is, is that the That's end? That's it. Okay, cool. All right, are we reading some listener mail? You go first. Um, okay, so this is from Brian, Dr. Brian Johnson, and he is... No one sent us listener mail music yet. No. We get a whole bunch of emails and no one has sent us listener mail music. Come on, team. Let's do it. So, Dr. Brian Johnson. Um, yeah, so it's topic requests is a subject of this email. Mm-hmm. And so Brian says, Dear doctors, thank you so much for your remarkable work. Two topics I'm always looking to see more on. Yep. Uh, one, psychopharmacology Good and one. two, neuropsychology. Ooh, they are going to be tricky. But we've got a good friend who's a psychiatrist and I think it could be potentially one of those episodes where we bring them on. What do you reckon? And... I did a um, psychopharmacology, it was more so pharmacodynamics, but focusing on psychopharmacology. Uh, Could turn that into a podcast, but let me have a think. All right. So thank you for that, Dr. Johnson. That is awesome. Um, Let's put this, let's put that on the list because I think that's the two really important ones. Um, All right. So we've got one here. This is from Aaron. Aaron has the subject viruses and the heart. Hello, Dr. Man, Dr. Mike. I'm a student at Griffith South Southport. What? I do remember this student. Okay, really? By name. Oh, okay. Well, firstly, hi, Aaron. It's nice to see you again or hear from you again. Uh, I'm a student from Griffith Southport and studied... Is that your course? Yeah. 
Pathophysiology Pharmacology 2 last year and still listen and watch the videos. That is what we call committed. a good, dedicated, committed student. Had a few questions regarding coronary arrest uh, and viruses. If you can help answer, my nephew Blake, who is a very fit, athletic and healthy 21-year-old, had a cardiac arrest while walking at Burley. He has no prior health conditions at all. Uh, Leading up to the arrest, he was feeling extremely fatigued and complained of pain around his shoulder the night before he slept. He was fortunate that there was a lifeguard nearby who performed CPR straight away. Blake was also lucky as there was an ambulance nearby. Wow, Blake is very lucky. Um, which took over the CPR and utilised the AED. Uh, to cut a very long story short, he did not suffer any brain damage uh, or damage to his heart and recovered at Gold Coast Hospital. They uh, have just installed uh, an ICD. Uh, after running tests, the doctors do not know what has caused this to happen. A theory from the hospital is a virus could affect the uh, electrics of the heart. So my question is, as I'm thinking, it's intracellular and could be pacemaker cells. Are there specific viruses which can affect the mitochondria in the cell and how long down the track can a virus damage the cell, then cause the dysfunction? Any information or resources uh, that you could suggest are appreciated. Thank you for your time. Warm regards, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. Um, all right, so to begin with, yes, viruses can affect multiple tissues of the body, and one susceptible tissue for a, a range of viruses can be the heart. Now, the thing is that what the viruses end up doing is it tends to damage the cells of the heart itself and can damage either the myocardium or it can damage the uh, modified myocardium, which can also be what we call the electrical components of the heart. This type of damage, any time you have damage to an aspect of the heart itself, because the heart functions as what we call a syncytium, which mm -hmm. means that... As a whole unit. A whole unit. So when one muscle cell has an, an issue, it can sort of extend to other tissues and it can play a role in sort of modulating the way that that heart works. And so it doesn't necessarily take a lot to damage the heart for the heart to have dysfunction. And that's how we saw a lot of myocarditis in the vaccines for COVID even, right? Yeah. So that something in the vaccine, probably the immune reaction to it and the cytokines caused low levels of myocarditis in particularly young the teenage males. Yeah. Um, but then when compared to active COVID, yeah. that was significantly worse. Well, and so right. the virus, I mean COVID in this case, having a, quite a profound impact on the muscles of the heart. But also more recently they've shown that um, COVID as the process that comes after the infection leads to atherosclerotic uh, pathogenesis. Yeah. So they've actually seen quite a, a large uptick in cardiovascular events yes. by people being um, recovered post-COVID. Yeah. From the virus itself. That's right. So the thing is that uh, there's heaps of viruses that can cause this myocarditis. COVID, like you stated, Hep B, Hep C, parvovirus, common cold, herpes simplex virus, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, rubella, uh, uh, the, uh, plus bacteria. Oh, it goes on and on. So and and, and, and to, to tease apart whether it's the virus itself or the immune response to the virus. It's difficult. It'll be challenging, right? But also you need to take into consideration, you know, while your cousin, cousin? While your cousin 
may not have had any identifiable underlying conditions, it's really difficult to know whether you know, somebody sits with a background of susceptibility, whatever that may be. Uh, and I'm not saying that is the case, but um, as we know with COVID, for example, um, COVID seems to be recognised as a vascular disease now. And because blood vessels are everywhere, some people might have their effects more so neurologically. Some might be cardiovascular. Some might be gastrointestinal. Some might be renal. So this seems to be the reason why there's so many vast broad effects in regards to different people having different issues with COVID is because it's a vascular disease. And so I think what Matt and I are trying to say is that it's very complex <laughs> um, and it could be a multitude of viruses affecting a multitude of cells, not necessarily in your question about it affecting the mitochondria. I'd say that that's probably um, too reductionist. It's going down too deep. Um, these viruses can simply just affect the overall function of the cells just generally and that can impact the way that the heart works. So hopefully that helps. Uh, fingers crossed. Yeah, and all, be- all the best with your cousin in his recovery. So who do we have here? Chloe? Chloe. Chloe's subject here is neuroscience. Ooh. So Chloe has asked whether we've made any videos or whether we would um, potentially make some videos on motor neuron diseases. I've touched so, upon it. So whether, you know, motor neuron disease because her granny... Um, presumably may be suffering from this, so she'd like to know more on that. Yep. So, uh, or uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS, um, or MNS, motor neuron, uh, MND, I should say, sorry. Uh, I've created a video on motor neurons themselves with a highlight on what can happen with motor neuron disease because you've got upper and lower motor neurons. Mm -hmm. Each of them have different functions in regards to the way that they can affect the musculature and the way it contracts and the way that they sort of speak to each other. So upper versus lower lesion issues, which is what you can get with motor neuron disease and ALS, can have varying symptoms. So I think if you watch that video, type in Dr. Mike motor neuron, you'll be able to watch a video that may not explicitly focus on those diseases, but it gives you an indication as to how... The symptomatology. ...occurs from different upper or lower lesions happening. And that, my friends, is a... Two hour and 15 minute episode on the male reproductive system. We hope we've done it justice. Again, if you've stayed to this point, good on you. You can contact us through social media at Dr. Mark Todorovic or you can go to our YouTube uh, channel and watch this video or, or and you go to our website, drmattdrmark.com.au. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Again, we know we're a little bit silly at certain points, but that's not too diminish uh, the importance of this topic. Uh, It's mainly just to make it a bit more enjoyable. And for some people, it is difficult to talk about these structures and functions. So we just wanted to make it a little bit more all-encompassing and relevant. So thank you, everyone. Thank you, Maddie. Thanks, Mike. Speak soon. See ya. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.